0: Welcome to Humans of Magic with James Su. My guest this week is Mason Clark. Mason is going to break down how to become a better magic player, and there's a lot of actionable insights on how to do that. By the way, for those of you listening now to Humans of Magic as an audio podcast, you may want to check out the Humans of Magic YouTube channel. I'm starting to split out the content so that audio is where you get these full interviews, and video is where I start getting experimental and maybe a little crazy with clips, stories, features and other stuff for the visual medium. If you're a longtime audio listener, no worries, it's going to stay this way. I'm just letting you know that the YouTube channel is going through an overhaul and the overall content for Human's Magic is going to change this year. There's even a dedicated video I made about this that I posted recently called, This Channel is Changing. Alright, that's it for the intro. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mason Clark.
1: Who is Mason Clark? Mason Clark is a 30-year-old man from Tennessee that is a professional Magic the Gathering player, but is a full-time coach, content creator, podcaster, done writing for a long time with Magic, um, and sort of just someone who really likes magic and really likes sort of improving and loves game design those are kind of like some of the big magic related stuff and then you know like some more of the like the shape is like you know i'm pretty big into like movies tv anime i like this sort of stuff big fan of music so that's kind of like a good little spherical who is mason clark that's me you're in tennessee right yeah, I mean I'm in Tennessee. I I live in an area called Cookville, which if you don't never heard of, like that's because no one has. I just moved out of Nashville, which is the capital. So I'm like forty-five ish minutes away from Nashville.
0: Okay. That's not too far. This is something that's often, I think, very underappreciated. At least I feel like it's important, is the ability you have to troll or to humor as a magic mm-hmm. player is very underrated. Like, how did you develop this? Is it just something that you were born with, or did you, <laughs> did it get better with time like magic?
1: Yeah, I would say it's interesting. So I you know some people say like they have like a persona online or something like that. And I would just say that like the difference between Mason on Twitter and like Mason there when it comes to like trolling and jokes and stuff like that is very little. Um I would say that sometimes I just like switch off cuz I need a social battery recharge, but like growing up I was like incredibly anxious, didn't have a ton of friends and like card games like specifically Yu-Gi-Oh were a thing that like really opened the door for me. And eventually I got on Lexapro and between therapy and some other stuff, I kind of got to the point where I've really, I don't want to say conquered, but I I got to the point now where, you know, my job is to talk and to like, you know, have this kind of conversations. And, you know, over the course of this podcast, I'll say easily more words than I said throughout all of high school up until that point, or excuse me, all of school up until that point. So like, it is something where it's very different, but I've always just sort of been me. And I always just sort of like, I don't know I, I just do what I think is funny and what I like, and that's like something that is always sort of like been at odds. Like some people are like, "Oh well, like you know, you would have more followers or have more opportunities where more people would do all these things if like you didn't like make jokes like that are just random or like tweet about anime or something." And it's like, yeah, but I don't care about that. Like I want it to be me. Like it, mm-hmm. this is Mason Clark. I'm giving you myself. It is like. It's like a one to one,
0: you're offline and online, sort of.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, the only thing that really changes is that, like, offline Mason has more serious conversations about magic and things because people just won't have serious, good faith conversations online. It's not Mm -hmm. that I don't like them, they just don't consistently do it. And it's, like, really hard. I think, one, I think I'm a bad text communicator and something I've been really trying to work on over the last couple of years. But two, I, I just think that, like, it's really hard to communicate via Twitter and stuff like that and have really deep, nuanced conversations, also to understand where they're coming from. So I just don't engage in it too much, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah. Which is, you know, not the way I'd like for Twitter to operate. I, I got on Twitter originally to find things and to learn stuff. Um, and now it's much more of like a funny little ha-ha-hee-hee thing mm-hmm. than anything else, so...
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. I mean, I wouldn't mm-hmm. even say it's impossible to communicate well online. It doesn't matter how amazing you are as a communicator overall. It's just a lot of, uh, I think you kind of alluded to it, just a lot of the nuance, a lot of the uh, reading comprehension just goes out the window when people are trying to debate or uh, win some sort of argument on Twitter or online. It's its very challenging.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's also really easy just to forget the other person as a person. And this isn't to say everyone, but I think a lot of people are trying to live their life doing what's right by them and their family. And they're trying to do like what's best, you know, not Mm -hmm. everyone. There are obviously people who aren't that way, but I think a lot of people are, do come a lot of people try to do the best they can basically. Exactly. Yeah. And and sometimes they mess up and sometimes like they don't even realize they mess up. I've definitely been in positions, you know, where I would say I'm like pretty aware of these things. And then like only upon reflection, I realize, Oh, that could look totally different if you've had this life experience, which I've never had. I totally see why this person was, you know, Mad or upset? I, like, uh, recently had a thing online where a friend made some post that was like, you know, what anime character to remind you of, and then like they replied underneath with like, no one will do this for me, and so I posted Shinji from Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I don't know if you've seen that one, but it's like a very oh, it's a sad. Classic, dep- yes, I have. It's yeah. A cla- yeah. So he's like a sad, depressed guy. I forgot about all the stuff where Shinji does kind of in the later movies and opening scenes and some other things. With Shinji. Or the end of Evangelion, yeah. Yeah, yeah of- I-, I forgot about those things in the moment because he was just like sad boy posting. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I like posted Shinji and he's like, man, that kind of hurt my feelings. I can't believe you think I'd be Shinji. And I was like, what do you mean? And then I like thought about it for a little bit and I was like, I totally forgot about all that That, stuff. That's because your interpretation (laughs)
0: of the character is different from that other person's interpretation. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, it's impossible to communicate that kind of, uh, as as you well know, the context Mm -hmm. and nuance of of that. Right. So.
1: Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. So
0: So you kind of alluded to it, but uh, how did you test the waters of being funny like offline before you made your way to Twitter and these platforms like because I I feel like Mm -hmm. someone's confidence no matter what whether it's humor or like playing a game like there's some sort of validation from others right so was that Mm -hmm. fairly easy for you like when you said something people thought it was funny or was it another type
1: of journey I I think it was a little bit of that I think I've I don't know like I grew up on stuff like Adam Sandler and like uh, Seinfeld and um, later in life, Curb and Arrested Development and stuff like that. So I feel like, I don't know, I've always just kind of been in tune with like making people laugh. And I feel like I typically have a good read on like what the other person finds funny based on stuff and stuff. I i don't know. I wouldn't say I've ever really thought about it. I would say I derive a lot of uh, self-worth and stuff intrinsically. And so a lot of the time I do kind of pick up like, oh, they don't really like that kind of joke. I don't make that kind of joke around them. And it's much more like. I say things that make me laugh. And so I just kind of do it. I think some people really like when you like are true to yourself and you sort of just say things and you just have like a commitment and like, you know, laughing at your own jokes is, I I think funny when it's like, you know, it's not like you're trying to be weird about it. You're just like telling jokes, having fun. And you know, I'm laughing at my own jokes and they're laughing. It's just like a good time. So I think a lot of people pick up on the vibe of like, Oh, it's just like good fun. You know? Okay.
0: So it's like a modified version of of the content creator's creed. Like, you know, do something mm-hmm. that you are entertained by. Sorry, I got my cat here.
1: Um, <laughs> Hello, kitty. <laughs> uh
0: yeah, he likes yeah. to get attention while we're recording. Um mm-hmm. but it's like do the, the content creator methodology is like do something that you would watch or you would enjoy. So it kinda for mm-hmm. you it was like humor, like you would find it funny. So uh mm-hmm. let's let's give it a give it a shot, right?
1: Kinda exactly. Thing. I yeah, and I, I try to do that like all the time. Like if I'm doing things, because I like it and I think I would enjoy it. So, like, I recently made a video on, like, on YouTube. I don't make, like, a ton of YouTube videos. But I made one that was basically, like, what would modern look like if, Uh, I think it was, I can't remember now. But, uh, gosh, it was, like, two months ago. But there was basically, like, this thought uh, that people had brought on Twitter. And I was, like, this is interesting. I'm going to make a whole video talking about this. Mm-hmm. And I, like, you know, made, like, a whole PowerPoint, a whole slideshow and talked about kind of, like, what would Modern look like if we didn't have... I think it was the Evoke Elementals as a whole or something like that. And I kind of just made a video about that. Um, and, like, you know, it didn't, like, blow the doors off anything or whatever. But, like, people said they really liked it. And I'd much rather make something that, like, you know, one person besides myself really enjoys as well. Than make something that a lot of people are like, oh, that was cool. And they, like, kind of keep moving, you know? Like, I watched Honorog uh, DOS stream... And I like joined his chat and he was like, dang, someone should really make a YouTube video out of this game one talking through it and stuff, you know, and like, that'd be a really good piece of content, you know? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. I'll do that. And so I like blind reacted and talked through it like it was coaching. And that was like a really cool video where I can sort of show people like, hey, this is what a little bit what it's like and – it's cool because I don't think people make videos like that. I think it's hard to consistently make stuff like that. I think the environment doesn't reward it. But I had a lot of people be like, oh, I really loved that video where I've rewatched that video. That video was very helpful. And to me, that's so much better than like, I don't know, I make a video where I play coffers through a league and I talk to you about coffers. And it's like just homework, you know? And some people really love doing that. And Mm -hmm. there's a great need for that kind of stuff. I don't want to say there's not. But for me personally, it's just like, the world doesn't need another white man telling you about cabal coffers or rhinos or something, you know, it's, we got enough, well, let's move on, you know? And so I'd much rather talk about like, what happens if you, you know, banned all the elementals or like, you know, what is the, what's my opinions on the modern band? Like, right. So what's my opinions right. on pioneer or like magic as a whole. So like that, that kind of stuff is the things I want to do. And I, like, you said, content creators, creed or whatever, right? Like make things that you would want to watch.
0: Yeah. I mean, now you're speaking my language. Like from mm-hmm. one spike to another, I feel like that is the stuff that it's challenging because you're always trying to do things as a creator that gets traction and gets engagement mm-hmm. and views. And I know those things don't hit as well as um, some other types of content. I'll just say that. But mm-hmm. I really love that stuff. Like I, I, I hope, I hope you excuse me for invoking names of like former Magic players or maybe our contemporaries. But for a while, I remember like, Matt Sperling doing that very well mm-hmm. with his channel, like analyzing certain plays or like like actual turn by turn. I think Paulo Vitor, PV, before he shut his YouTube channel down, like he was doing some good stuff there. Um, obviously, you're doing some good stuff. Like I like watching those kind of like breakdowns, like breakdowns mm-hmm. of actual, like how do you navigate the turn? What are you trying to play around? Like that's, I find that super interesting. Um, but yeah. I'm just trying to, I, I guess the question for you here is like, is it? interesting just because you're you're doing it and you enjoy it it's like intellectually challenging or do you have to also balance it with like you know the the things that people are into because I think traditional like competitive magic content thinking requires you to kind of simplify to give you to give somebody a deck list or a cyborg Mm -hmm. guide or you know convention abc right is it difficult to like do these kind of things and kind of go on the limb and maybe find out like hey maybe there isn't as much interest in it, even though I myself am
1: very interested in it. Yeah, I think, so for a long time, I had like a traditional job. I did stuff, Um, but in that, like, you know, was supplement income and now I'm full-time magic. And it's interesting because now that my like income is tied to magic, I think the incentives get a little bit more perverse, right? Before, when it doesn't really matter how the content does, I can do whatever I want, however I want right mm-hmm. it's like well this is just a passion type thing but now there's a little bit of difference i sort of still just have decided to operate uh under the thing that like i'm going to do what i want and what i think is right and i'm hopefully it's going to pay off uh, i am incredibly lucky and blessed that things have worked out that way and i have sort of i feel like carved out a niche of and try to cultivate a thing of like mason is like fun and you know he's going to joke around with you but like when you have a serious conversation it's going to be serious and we're going to really kind of dive into the nuance and sort of what matters and i have a really big you know you mentioned like talking about like oh there's this real demand for like cyborg guide versus you know like actually understanding something and i try to always sort of meet in the middle so when i did like well with um uh, four color Yorion background when uh dreamhack dallas i like had i made a forever guide which was basically a cyborg guide that had a little breakdown of like three or four sentences, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less on each matchup. And it was 20 bucks and it was just forever was the idea. Like until the, I said, until you gets going to get banned, you buy this, you get this. Right. And it really gave me a sort of thing where it's like, Hey, you know, like I am getting paid for this. They are getting the deck list and they have the ins and the outs. And if they want it, you know, I can lead the horse to water of like, here's a little bit of a breakdown and a small understanding of like what matters in the matchup and why. And I try to always just do that. So sometimes my sideboard guides take me a lot longer than maybe they would someone else, but I feel a lot better about the product because it's like, listen, I am sure 90% of people, at least on the first glance, they open up the sideboard guide, they download the deck list, they look at the ins and the outs, and then maybe after playing a little bit, they'll go back and read what I wrote. But I'd much rather add that extra, you know, six, eight hours, whatever it takes me, you know, to like add in all the other stuff. um, Then not have that and just be like, yeah, cyborg, guide, cyborg, guide, cyborg guide, and just like crank them out over and over again, because that doesn't feel like what I would want. So I just don't do it. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. It does.
0: And it actually reminds me of the conversation we had before the recording about like mm-hmm. how well you're targeting competitive magic players in terms of the pool analogy. Like how deep are you in mm-hmm. the pool? The cyborg guide I would say is like on the, what's the analogy, like the shallow end of the yes. pool, or like yeah. the, it's the level one, like, okay, I'm gonna start with this. And if you wanna go deeper and really understand why mm-hmm. things are the way they are, then mm-hmm. maybe there's a coaching conversation. Maybe there's some attempt to like, I think you mentioned in another podcast, like you mm-hmm. calibrate different cyborg guides of the same deck to try to understand mm-hmm. like where the truth is, right? Try to mm-hmm. arrive at the truth. And if you wanna go deeper than that, there's like even more things you can do. Like, okay, mm-hmm. now that you become you become a master of this deck, what can you do that actually is, like, n- like next leveling your opponent who expects you to do something, and then you're kind mm-hmm. of, like, dealing, like, this sort of, like, curveball to them? Like, there's lots mm-hmm. of ways to do it, but I think it mm-hmm. starts with having... There's nothing wrong with starting with a level one, and, and having a cyborg guide or, like, an intro, mm-hmm. I think that's really good for that.
1: Yeah, I, I think, like... There's a lot of things that are really cool about magic. And you just mentioned one that I'm like, okay, if the normal play patterns are about this, then like maybe my standard deck's going to play this card because it breaks those conventions. You know, exactly. like I'm going to play this artifact creature as a 3-3 because I'll just go for the throat and cut down. That's really cool. That's really awesome. Magic's a great game for that. And that isn't as deep in the pool as I would say some things can get, but I think to get there, you really need to understand everything else. And it's a lot of it's like kind of building a pyramid, right? or making a house, you know, if you have a poor foundation, it's going to crumble, or, you know, maybe we stand up for a little bit, but things might change, and then suddenly you don't have actual skills, and uh, something, you became like a one trick in a certain deck, and then that deck where archetype becomes less viable, and your house crumbles, right, so I think really understanding the fundamentals, and the basics, and understanding why we make the choices we do, that is so much what matters to me, you know, um, I talk to people a lot about coaching, like, I don't really care about winning and losing. Like, I like competing, but like, what I care a lot about is why did we make the plays that we did and how did we come to those conclusions, you know? And I think it is much better to have like a good thought process or a defendable reason for everything you did than it is to win the tournament. Like, I'd personally much rather like have medium results and, you know, do well for like, you know, do well ish for a year than consistently spike tournaments, not really understand why or be getting lucky or something. And maybe just like, you know, not having a good understanding of what makes this good. Because I think I want to be able to have skills to pick up and a good understanding to pick up anything and then play it, right? So, like, with this Amalia deck last week for the RC, you know, that's something that some of the people I coached had a little bit of issues with because they had never played, like, sort of a creature combo deck that also threatens this kill out of nowhere, right? So, when I tried to help one of them, because I had, like, a little testing team for people... Uh, they get coaching and we kind of like did our own little thing, which was a cool experience. But one of them, she was struggling and I was like splinter twin them and she didn't understand what that shorthand meant. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I meant was like, Hey, apply pressure and threaten to combo them the moment they tap out, you know? Mm-hmm. And once I taught her that and showed it to her, like in a game, it instantly clicked, you know? And now I think she has like a one building block of that understanding of like how that little thing works, but understanding that doesn't matter if you can't attack and block and you can't, Figure out how what cards matter in the matchup, and how to sequence, and how to land drop, and how to you know build a reasonable sideboard, and how to mulligan. The, these are the core skills that allow you to do the other stuff. So,
0: so many questions I need to uh, to
1: ask to ask <laughs> on top of what you just said,
0: but I'll try one at a time. All right, nice. Um, that splinters my example and Amali example is really a really good one because it begs the question: What should one do as a Magic player to even get the foundational or the fundamentals like mm-hmm. is it playing certain decks in certain eras is it reading literature from certain eras is it attacking and blocking as you said like mm-hmm. what is it
1: there's a lot and I, I think i wish there was like i wish there were some, five hours I, right no yeah <laughs> I, I wish there was like some masterclass type thing or some area i could point you to but i think And I I, I really personally like this being my like job, you know, like for those that don't know they're listening, like my full-time job is like, I coach, I coach about like, you know, 35 to 40 hours a week. That's kind of what I do. And um, I wish I, and I'm working on trying to get it more distilled and more refined. But I think that like where I would say to begin with this, like attacking and blocking is a huge part of magic. um, And it is something that matters a lot because there's so much to the game. It's about creatures and the board. So that's like, one part of it and i think like really engaging with combat and figuring out those sort of things so
0: that's like the karate kid wax on wax off like you should probably just even like go through combat math and mm -hmm. and get familiar with a ton of like just i don't know what's the right term like just a lot of repetition on like certain
1: situations like how to attack into or how to defend and that kind of yeah and like one thing i tell people early on is like try to think about can I make an attack here that sets up an attack on the next turn? So to give like a very quick rough example, like let's say I have a 4-4 four, four, and some two twos, right? And you have a couple two twos. Well, the board's kind of locked up, and I can offer my 4-4, four, four, and maybe like, you know, if I hit you, it might not matter this turn, but it might be setting up lethal later, or I get my nice clean 2 for one and then I can slam in with more of my 2 twos, right? Where I can make a big alpha attack, and I'm going to push more damage, you know? Maybe the example gets a little more complicated, where I have a 3-3, three, three, a couple of them, some two twos, right? So... What happens, I think, a lot of times, and a I, I, I sort of shared experience I think we all have Magic players have, is you, like, the end of the round, you're like, what is going on? And you walk over, and there's, like, this clogged board state where both players have a million things, right? And I think a lot of times what happened is, not always, but a lot of the times, someone missed their opportunity to start attacking and getting in with, like, you know, that old growth troll, that cavalier of thorns, that, you know, one rhino token, and they missed the opportunity. And so I, I tell a lot of people, like, hey, like, try to pay attention on where you can start making attacks. And something I learned that was really helpful to me was, like, you're probably attacking a turn too late was something that someone told me a long time ago. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I always try to think about, like, if there is, if it looks like I can't attack, I ask myself the question of, am I missing an attack? Mm-hmm. So th- that is something, you know, sometimes there are not any good attacks. But I think times, that's, you know... sorry
0: to interrupt you, but that speaks mm-hmm. to incremental advantages because sometimes that extra yeah. two damage it decides the match, essentially. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, if I get in for, like, you know, let's say two damage a couple times because you don't want to block or whatever because you think I have an Aganjo or an wandering Emperor that gives First Strike or something. And, you know, I don't. I'm bluffing you. I want the trade, right? And, like, I hit you for, like, let's say four damage over two turns. Suddenly, you know, my dragon or this kill spell I draw uh, matters a lot or your kill spell matters a lot less, right? And instead of being able to beat down on me, you're like, well, I'm at, like, six now. I can't attack with as much as I want to because Mason got in that four damage earlier. So I think that's really important. The next thing that I constantly tell people is that like big picture thinking of magic is the thing that i think people don't practice enough and magic players are historically awful at practicing they just play games over and over again and they're like this is the way to improve i'll just play a million games and it's like Mm -hmm. it doesn't really work that way if you're not thinking about things you don't have a purpose if you're not reflecting on them it's not going to help you you know Uh, I talk about and I typically use my friend Misplaced Ginger as an example in coaching of, you know, some people think they need to play like Derek does and just play 40 hours of moto a week. And that's the only way to get to the pro tour. And I think Derek is more the exception than the rule. He's just someone who's kind of like out there and people know. Um, I think that like actually thinking about sort of how these matchups play out. What are the cards that matter? What are the strengths of my deck? What are the weaknesses? Why is this deck the strongest deck? Understanding those kind of things that matters so much more than like you know playing a bunch of games. Your first you know fifty games of your standard deck matter a lot. Your first hundred games of your modern deck matter a lot. Your five hundredth game of Merktide probably isn't giving you the insight that like spending thirty minutes and just like reading over Rhino's deck list and being like so this is how they are all building their decks. I think they might sideboard like this against me. How might I sideboard differently? Or like does this make sense for me to play my games in that way? And do I want to have this card instead of that card because of this? Right. And those sort of things, and then going out and testing with friends and, like, active, actually testing, you know, and being like, hey, let's engineer scenarios where, like, you know, these Rhino players are all playing, you know, Nightpack Ambushers, a new card is popping up in Cyborgs, right? And, like, let's assume you think this is for the Merc Tide matchup for whatever reason. It's like, hey, Steve, put Nightpack Ambusher in your opening hand, draw six other cards, and let's play, and let's see what it's like, because I think that that card probably doesn't matter against me but everyone seems to be doing it, and I kind of want to test it, right? Or maybe I think that card is the Stone Colds against me, and I think that, like, it's going to be too hard to have, you know, answers for your Rhinos and answers for this card, you know, blah, 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 and play, reflect, and think, and very much take, like, the scientific method from high school, right? Form a hypothesis, test your hypothesis, reflect, and, you know, repeat the process, and be like, okay, I thought these things, here we are, this, you know? Jerry Thompson kind of calls this, like, the truth of the matchup in some ways, you it was something that, like, when he said it on game, I think it was, Jerry's podcast has had so many names, right? But I think at this point it was called game. And I when he said that, it clicked to me because that was something I had been doing with other stuff, but didn't know how to verbalize it, you know? And when he said those words and kind of talked about it a little bit, I was like, oh, this is what the thing I've been doing is. Like, trying to figure out, like, what matters in, like, a few games and then exploit it. That's the truth of the matchup. That's what I should call this thing, you know? And sometimes I call it like macro game planning now in coaching, but yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, macro, or sometimes I think I've, I don't know if this is exactly the same mm-hmm. concept you have to tell me, but it's sort of like just saying, like, what's the game plan? How do I plan to win this matchup? Like, what are the keys to winning the matchup? And it's just thinking beyond, like, oh, you know, what's, what am I going to mulligan this hand? Am I going to attack this turn? Like, it's basically what's my comprehensive macro right
1: 100 yeah and i think like you know there's a lot of things that matter for you know basic uh like beginning in the foundation stuff but the big thing i would tell people is slow down think through your turn be precise and like try and form game plans you know i think we talked about earlier cyborg guides i think are legitimately a great tool and it's not because the lights are on because of it you know i think they are a great tool for people who have a lot of things going on and just in general want to get insight from someone I don't think I've ever seen anyone who wasn't like myself or someone I've talked to who like writes their own guide before or after buying someone's guide, but before reading it and then compare notes. Like that was the thing where it'd be like, okay, I've bought, you know, let's say Jesse Robkin's cyborg guide, right? And so I I pull up her breach deck, but before I read anything else, I look at her breach deck. You know, I know the 10 matchups that are there. I'm like, okay, this is what I think and why. And I'm going to write this out or at least have it in my head. You know, it doesn't need to be actually written, but I'm going to think about it. And then I'm going to read what Jesse said. And I'm going to assume that the very smart person who I paid money for was right. And be like, okay, why did I think this? And she thought this. And I assume she is right. And we'll work from that conclusion. Oh, she mentioned this in her article about, you know, unholy heat actually doesn't matter a lot. I thought it would. That makes a ton of sense. Urza Saga might outgrind them. It's going to be hard for them to leave in a lot of those cards. I've learned something, right? So that's something thing where I tell people. People don't work on making game plans enough, and they just play. And, you know, having an idea gets you so far. And I, for a long time, I've been a true believer that plan beats no plan every time. Plan mm-hmm. versus plan, things get a little bit more complicated. But if you and I play a 100 games, and you just play your cards, and I have a plan in the matchup... I'm going to win a majority of them unless the matchup is truly lopsided in your favor.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because as I've talked to a lot of competitive players on this podcast, there are kind of Mm -hmm. two extremes, right? On one hand, you have somebody like misplaced ginger, AKA Derek, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, he, he has a solid foundation for magic. So it's just Mm -hmm. because I see Mm -hmm. him play a ton of matches. doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that he doesn't already have fundamentals from You know, the previous years or decades that he's played Magic. But you do have people that play a lot. And Mm -hmm. you have someone like, um, you know, Hall of Famers or pros. someone like an Alexander Hain who says, you know, you'd be surprised how little I play Magic and how much I just think about Mm -hmm. Magic, right? Is it, I guess the question is, is it just about getting the baseline or 10,000 hours of Magic first before you can make a decision to grind harder or to think harder? Or Mm -hmm. is it all moot if you don't have the foundational, experience i guess is the question
1: yeah that's a great question and really quickly i want to say i think i have a lot more respect than the average person for misplaced ginger i put him very highly and he's oh, my me too. Friend. like and, I, I, yeah. I i love his stuff and yeah. i love
0: how he plays magic so i'm not mm-hmm. trying to throw any shade at him you know
1: same yeah yeah i, I just want to make that very clear i have a lot of respect for ginger and if i i wouldn't use him as the example if i didn't have you know respect for him i think it's much more just like he is playing so much And like a great comparison actually is another canadian Hayne. right like Hain, when was playing Magic, barely played, and Ginger plays all the time. Hane is better than Ginger. They would all agree to that, whatever. I've heard them have the conversation before. But, like, it is not, like, so disparate, right? But they just approach things very differently. So I think to answer your question, it's really interesting, and I've thought about it a lot recently because I was listening uh, to Hikaru talk about something with chess i can't remember exactly what now but basically so he was saying like if you didn't start learning like these kind of things before you were like four then give your dream up on being a grandmaster there's more to life and you can be an i am and be very happy you know and that made me really think about magic where it was like interesting i wonder how much early on teaching these people to think about uh big picture planning and to come up with game plans helps them versus hurts them right because in some ways I am sort of giving a child a power drill, right? Where it's like come up with a plan, you know, and they're like vroom, vroom, and they like try to like they're like I'm gonna never play into days or whatever, and it's like well you're gonna be off curve and lose the game. Sometimes you have to play into days, mm-hmm. you know. But I love mm-hmm. where your head's at, kid. So I, I think that like you know when I, you asked me that question, my answer is sort of like I think if I could have the ideal sort of magic player, I think they should be thinking about those things kind of like Hayne does but they should be grinding like Ginger does so they get to the point where they feel like they've sort of hit the natural cap for whatever format they're competing in and the sort of games that are going on there and then they should start to balance it more out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think, like, on the scale, I fall, I think, almost to a fault on the, like, Alexander Hayne part of the thing where I play significantly less Magic than I probably should. I should probably be grinding uh, more, especially for competitive events, but I have always sort of taken the, like thinking about things, focus testing, and then going into a tournament, you know? And so I think I would probably be better off if I did, you know, another five hours of preparation before an event of actually playing. But I do think that, like, once you sort of get the foundational skills down and you do have those strong understandings of magic at a core, you can pick up and play these other decks and you can really focus on game plans and thinking about things beforehand Mm -hmm. and then focus on tight technical play in the game. One of the things I typically tell people in coaching is that, like, no matter where you, what game you're playing, you know if if you want to, you can like practice planning through your whole turn and tight technical play in every game. You know, you and I are Cuban. We can, you know, you can practice those things while still having yep. fun. If you want to, obviously don't don't ruin the vibes or whatever. But you know, you could do it. Same thing. That you and I are playing in an RCQ. We could have that happen. So I'm just kind of of the belief that like I prepare more by thinking in the actual in-game decisions. I've sort of thought about those things, how the games play out, sort of what matters. And then I use those things to kind of inform where I stand. And then I make the choices in game. And so when I'm preparing for tournaments, typically it's to get, like... When I play games, it's often to see, like, something I can't imagine in my head or something I, I don't really know the play pattern for and I try to get understanding. Or it's me trying to get more sample size to, like, understand more scenarios to think of. And then when I play the tournament, you know, I really try to think through what the decisions in, like what all their plays have meant because I just don't have the time to grind like someone like Nathan would, I think to like, or ginger to like really get that understanding of every little minute detail. So I need to sniff it out when I'm playing, but I have the faith and the confidence that I can do that pretty well. And I just need to prepare well beforehand on the other things so that I can focus solely on playing. And I can be like, yeah, I understood sort of what mattered in this matchup. We went in and then it was my job just to, you know, orchestrate the game to play out the way I wanted it to. So. Was there
0: something about you or your lived experience before Magic that allowed you to have the confidence to think through things rather than rely on grinding and repetition? Like, I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out what makes Mason Mason, right? Because sure. we all have a different starting point. That's that's where my mm-hmm. curiosity comes into play.
1: Yeah, I, I, know, I think about this a lot. And I know that one thing when it comes to specifically like thinking about games and kind of like imagining them in my head and playing through them and processing them is like, you know, earlier in this conversation I mentioned how I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. But like I did play Yu-Gi-Oh and like other card games it was one of the few ways to socialize. And my parents got divorced, as everyone, you know, from the two thousands parents did, it seems. And when my parents got divorced, I like uh I would sometimes play with my neighbor friends, uh like the Yu-Gi-Oh cards we had or whatever. But then I would be at my dad's house and like, you know, I wouldn't know anyone. He lived in like a condominium for a while before he bought a house. And so it was this whole thing. But eventually, you know, um, he like brought me to an actual LGS. And like I went and I played a pre-release. And I started playing weeklies. And I like actually started playing in tournaments. And I didn't really have any way to practice. And like my other friends who were like, you know, kids didn't really want to play in those sort of things. And I was very bad. Let me make this incredibly clear. This is not some prodigy story you're about to hear. This was Mason was getting crushed i think i won one of the junior locals ever across like three years i'm not even sure if i won actually i might have maybe just got second But i know i made the finals of at least one but anyways i would play games in my head a lot because i had no one else to play with and i would think about why i would lose and like why these things would happen to me and i didn't ever i think come to like great conclusions but i know that sometimes i did figure things out like oh the reason they made their play is because they had, like, there was a Yu-Gi-Oh! Called, called Sakuratsu Armor, which would kill an attacking creature. And it's like, they wanted me to attack in. And so the only reason they would ever make something that looked dumb is because it favors them. And that was, like, a learning moment for Little Mason. Um, And then I ended up quitting playing, going to high school, and coming back. But I think that's part of it where... And I ended up playing other card games and other video games and stuff throughout life. But a lot of it is, like, thinking about, like, how do things play out in interactions? And also just kind of, like... I've always been someone who sort of like thinks very visually and processes things very much in like a visual, not text-based way. Actually, at this last RC, I was playing this new board game that's coming out with my friend Abe, and he was just beating the crap out of me. We had like Is this Abe Stein, Abe Stein, yeah, from the CC okay. podcast. Um, and it's this really cool like rock-paper-scissors variant. Um, I don't want to say the name because I'm going to butcher it, but I'm going to tweet about it a bunch. I've pre-ordered it; it's super fun. And I just could not win. And uh, his friend Jonathan Sukenik was there. And Sukenik was like, everyone, like the third game is when people really start to get it, you know? And I was like, we'll see about that. And not in like a, (laughs) I'm going to get it before then. And like a... I think it's going to take me more time than the average bear. Oh, okay. I thought it was chip on your shoulder. I'm going to get (laughs) it by the second game. No, no, no. It was very much like Mason understands he is not good at like reading these things and figuring it out. He needs to live the experiences a little bit. Mm. And like by like this, I think it was like the seventh or eighth game. I just, I've lost all of them. And I stand by the fact that it was like a makeshift version of the game. Definitely lost me one, but I don't think I would have been winning a bunch. I don't think I'd have good enough Shanding. And I like look to Abe and I'm like, how like what is actionable feedback for me to improve at this game because i don't know what i'm doing wrong and he explained it to me as like it's a fighting game and you should think of it like neutral in a fighting game and he knows that i watch like a little bit of street fighter but like a good amount of like melee and so as soon as he said that i won the next two games back to back because i suddenly understood what mattered in the game because he gave me like a frame of reference so that when we were playing Mm. in my mind i could imagine like if this was a fighting game Abe is disadvantaged and neutral right now so I get to punish and he's going to have to either try to counter or move back but it doesn't make sense for him to move in so he's going to move back so I'll do this. You know, and like that sort of thing um, is like kind of how I think and so I definitely think that one, I'm a very visual learner. Two, I have had a lot of experiences growing up where I didn't have people to play with and mm-hmm. so I did a lot of thinking and being introspective which I think I am in a lot of parts of my life and three, I think that like in general, and people who get coaching from me will tell you, uh, I think about things in a very unique way. If you haven't already heard from like all my comparisons here, sometimes I view things in a very unique light, and I just don't shy away from that. That's just the way I see the world, and I don't hide it. You know, I'd be like, mm-hmm. "Oh yeah, I'm unapologetic." Like, that's just I, what you think. I'm me. That's mm-hmm. that's your clip for Twitter. Mason's me. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that's yeah. what it is.
0: So it sounds like mm-hmm. you're good at. Putting together frames of reference, you're good Mm -hmm. at like associating one thing with another or Mm -hmm. uh, is it fair to say pattern recognition or creating Mm -hmm. frameworks for understanding a game Mm -hmm. or rule set?
1: Yeah, I think creating a framework and understand uh, like a framework and rules of understanding is a good one. And I do think pattern recognition is something I am pretty good at. Um, I wouldn't say I'm like out of this world at it, but I, I think I am better at like relating to people and scenarios, for example, better than pattern recognition. I think I'm pretty good mm-hmm. at pattern recognition. So yeah, yeah. This, this, this
0: are... actually reminds me of uh, a recently when I interviewed Kai Buddha, um, mm-hmm. Kai, who is obviously one of the the all time magic greats.
1: Goat to goat, that's and why the comparison. I yeah. I was
0: extremely, <laughs> I was extremely surprised because I asked him like like Are you just naturally talented?" And He said, "No, like I just out prepare." Everybody mm-hmm. else. Like I just grinded I just out grinded everybody else. He says mm-hmm. if you're looking for the best intuitive magic player that can learn a game quickly and figure out like a new mechanic or new format, that's not me. That's someone like Finkel. That's somebody um, you know, our mutual friend. I-, I dare say like he didn't say it, but I, I feel like someone like Jonathan Sukenic is someone who's mm-hmm. very intuitive as a as a gamer. Like he can pick up Real things smart. so quickly I don't know mm-hmm. I don't know as mm-hmm. as well I don't know Abe as well but I definitely know Jonathan is in that in that category mm-hmm. he's much more like of an intuitive magic player like some of the things I've heard him say in terms of magic stories it just blows my mind right yeah
1: um, <laughs> it's insane just just <laughs> yeah.
0: like like how he won this entire like limited portion of a pt just by like bluffing his opponent the entire tournament mm-hmm. and how he like he just reads like the spoilers for a new limited set like like on the flight over to a a PT and he just like 3-0's the draft and it's just like there's some unbelievable stuff. Anyways, it's just not this is not a podcast about Jonathan. Um <laughs> I'm just trying to say that there are some players that like are very heavily on the preparation side and some players that are, just seem to have like this sort of like intellectual horsepower or intellectual intuition. And you're mm-hmm. kind of like a balance of the
1: two, right? A a little bit, yeah. I I, I would say this that, you know. Um, if like Sukinic so is like, um, like a Ferrari or something when it comes to those sort of things, you know, I'm much more like a BMW, you know, I'm not, I'm not shabby. Okay. I can go fast. This is but the unapologetic I'm I'm no, no, I'm no metaphor time from Mason. <laughs> <Exactly>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that like... You're dependable, you right? Down. You you don't yeah. break
0: down. You're a BMW. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. You're not like a BMW where, um, you know, the, the wipers <laughs> always go down or you have to go exactly, redo it. Anyways, yeah. you, you can yeah. count on me. I'm not like other okay. guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you did mention that I I did say I want to go back and unpack Mm -hmm. some of the things you said. Um, Why do you think it was that your build of Four Color Mm Yorion was the most popular Mm -hmm. build of Yorion? What was your secret sauce for getting that adoption or popularity, at least within Mm -hmm. the U.S.?
1: Yeah, I, I think... I think it's a couple things. One, I think I was willing to make like small changes and take some risks in spots. So, like, I think what, for example, one memory that stands out to me is I was talking to Ape Stein, you know, we talked about it in this episode, and I was specifically talking about like, am I going to play like one Veil or like one Night of Autumn or like one Flusterstorm? You know, what are these going to do? And Ape's just like, well, it's a one of in your 80 card deck and it's in your sideboard. So it's just not going to come up. And I go, I think it matters a lot because I think I need to prepare for what I'm going to expect people to do. And my deck can answer anything. I just need to make sure I'm picking the right battles and have the right tools for the problem. And, you know, it was something later on where he was like, to him, that moment stood out. Like, to me, it stands out as a moment of like, oh, like these things do matter. And like getting kind of like called out and having to rationalize it. And from him was a moment of like, oh, maybe these things matter more than I am thinking they are in the situation where traditional wisdom would say Mason's deck is more diluted than normal. So I think there's a little bit of, like, adjusting and tuning that happened. I also think there's some amount of, like, I listened to other people and took what I liked about their ideas and took a much more practical approach. I think one thing that people forget and that people kind of forgot early into, like, the vaccine era of Magic was that, like, Magic Online and Magic and Paper are totally different games. Like, Magic Online is a, like, living card game where everyone has all the cards and metagames can adapt and move and Magic and Paper is not that by a mile, and people are slow to adapt, they are slow to move, and it is expensive, and I do not blame them, and mm-hmm. so, like, I remember going into the Vegas um, that was, like, the GP, but not really a GP that will end up getting ninth in, and uh, Will Kruger was like, I don't know, man, Canister says you should play Domain's Veto in your main deck, he's really smart, there's gonna be, like, you know, a good amount of uh Belcher there, I, I think you'd do it, you know, but, like, trust yourself, you know, you're smart, whatever, and I was like, yeah, I, I understand where Kanish coming from, but I just don't think people are going to fly to the first Magic GP and play a bunch of Belcher, nor do I think Belcher is actually that good outside of this matchup. So if someone wants to, like, beat me and win the tournament, like, beat me and lose in the tournament, that's fine. Like, I'm okay with that. So in the all context the of
0: going. that paper tournament, at that yeah. point in time, mm-hmm. Belcher was kind of a boogeyman or was going to be overrated in terms of uh,
1: representation. That's That was your thought. That, yeah, because online it was doing really well Because Four Color This was like right when Four Color was just starting to pick up And so people were like, I know how to beat this I'll play Belcher, which is true Belcher just yeah. beats the tar out of Four Color uh, Yeah, especially because I around. know, like, online mm-hmm.
0: is so optimized And every prelim, exactly. every challenge Is literally like a giant LGS event mm-hmm. Every week, it just adapts, you know
1: Yeah, and, and it's like, you know like It's almost like, what is magic if everyone could just spend $50 a month and have all the cards, right It's like a totally different game and I put, like, you know, at the time, it was, like, not normal to have, like, or at least it hadn't been, like, traditional wisdom by everyone to put, like, Counterspell in the main deck. And it wasn't traditional wisdom to do, like, things like play ice Iceman Coattles and, like, mm-hmm. four ofs. Um And there was something else that was a little bit weird for the time. But, you know, I, I did some things that were a little odd and like really trusted that like in paper there's gonna be a lot more creature decks and people are gonna play normal decks and there's not gonna be a ton of these other decks nor do i think i can win those deck those matchups by doing these other things you know like Mm -hmm. i can just counterspell eternal witness ephemerate lock a lot of people out of the game and i'll win and Mm -hmm. so i think a lot of it was things like that and i think a lot of it too was listening to what the other people were saying and learning from them and then not practicing four color I have, like, three leagues of Yorion four-color total. One was before the event, because Abe and Ginger bullied me into playing at least one league before my, you know, uh, GP I flew out to, essentially. uh, Which I guess was worth it. And then I played another one with Jesse and another one on stream, I think. And that was, like, it during the Yorion days. And when I would practice, I would play every other deck. I would be like, all right, let me play Rhinos, let me play Living It, let me play Jun Saga. let me play Murktide, let me play this deck, let me play that deck, let me brew this deck, let me see, does this deck actually beat four-color? And then I would use that information to build my deck. So I think between, like, not staying, I would say, listening to what other four-color players were saying and taking their things and refining taking it. Taking the feedback or taking
0: different points mm-hmm. of view, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, like, I remember Andrew Ellenbogen, like, a big one for me was, like, he said Dress Down is probably good in the main deck or something along those lines, right? Like, that's a reasonable main deckable card. I think he had one. And I was like, I really like where his head is at on that. Going into Dreamhack Dallas, I think, you know, Amulet in the Mirror is going to be a little bit more popular than it has been. I think people are going to really care for this tournament and they'd be willing to spend more money. I'm going to main deck these Dress Downs as, like, I think a two of at the time. And I was like, it's also a good Urza Zaga hate card. And it's just a cantrip in my 80-card deck. You know, exactly. worst comes to worst, I draw a card. And yeah. so I did that and that was huge. Like it was very important throughout that whole tournament that I like had these dress downs in my main deck and I won a lot of rounds and beat a lot of amulet players because they slammed cultivator Colossus, which players were playing a lot of to like beat me. Mm-hmm. And I had main deck dress down and you know, and I you got a little lucky dress down. to have it. Yeah. yeah. They're just like, really? And I'm like, nice. Yeah. Clip. I think it's kind of good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so it was just like those kind of stuff, but like constantly tuning, and constantly just being on top of those sort of things and really having between that, I would say that was a big part of it. And then the skill we talked earlier about macro, big picture of thinking what matters in the matchup and how do I play my games? I think that is my best skill as a magic player. And I think four color, because it just had like answer density, like it had more answers than decks had threats. And if you knew how to line them up, you would win. I think it really just honed in a moment of like my best skill on top of everything with the best deck and it just like really rewarded me in the, you know, that time. So mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that was kind of the mixture. And then like, you know, cause it was so good players were picking it up and they crushed, you know, either
0: back then or even mm-hmm. now, like what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about the modern format? Like what's, what's, what are the secret insights? I'm going to ask you to spill the beans. Like what are the insights that you think you uniquely have that other people may not see?
1: I think in general, and this goes beyond modern a lot of people don't realize we're like in a different era of magic in like a pretty real way and i can typically tell when people think this way because they'll say something along the lines of like wow this 3-3 for three is great or whatever you know and it's like a 3-3-3 with some minor upside and it's like yeah it's like much better than you know cards from 2014-2016 era or whatever but like it is not standing up to cards like Fable the Mirror Break, or something like that. And so like while it's a solid card and it is an exciting, cool card, it is not up to snuff. And just because the card is up to snuff, you know, compared to 10 years ago, spoilers, we're living in the present. And to compare that to modern currently, I think I think players have caught up now on it. But I think what they a lot of people forget that modern used to be a format where it was uninteractive ships passing in the night, right? Like very much what Pioneer is now and the complaints are about it were the complaints of Modern, uh, like, up until MH1, basically. Yeah, and then even you, then, you do
0: your Solitaire, I do mine, right? Maybe yeah, there's some exactly. interaction, but it's not guaranteed.
1: Yeah, and, like, Humans was one of the best decks in the format, right? Because it had disruption for that and a fast clock. So it was kind of like Solitaire as its little, you know, kick you in the shins and run. And so, like, with that in mind, like, Modern changed forever with MH2. MH2, they just, like, clearly aimed very high on trying to get interactive cards, because interactive cards had never stuck. And it turns out if you aim high and you take a lot of shots, sometimes you hit a lot. And when you hit a lot with those kind of things, you fundamentally change the format. So, well, I don't think this is exactly something that, like, I think people are catching up to it. I think for a while people didn't get it. And I think people don't understand that, like, the format is about interacting in a lot of ways and, like, having with resources. And things like the One Ring actually make those even more perverse, where, like, the One Ring now... The entire format sort of before was balanced around the two for one nature of the evoke elementals and the one ring invalidates that disadvantage and yeah. gives you, gives you infinite resources. So that is all to say, I think that's the thing that is at least what jumps out to me is that and players just underappreciating like how much interaction there is in modern these days. That is like, and what's on rate and what's
0: actually in the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, maybe I can make my gener- my question more general, which is mm-hmm. when you're analyzing or you're getting into a format at a point in time, what are things that you look for? Like, mm-hmm. what are you? What are things you look for to get an edge?
1: Um, hmm, that's a great question. So the, f- I guess I can use like standard as an example because I think having some sort of framework will help. Look sure, better. we're going to
0: standard season, so yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. So like the first thing I kind of look for is like what is especially like a format like standard like what is the removal like because that sort of defines what the threats are like right so in standard we have ley line binding but you have to really kind of meet it in standard we have go for the throat we have cut down we have get lost and i feel like i'm forgetting one in the moment but those are i think are the main ones that they kind of have in standard and that really sort of informs some things when i'm looking at decks and i'm going forward in this process i know that like my things need to be kind of good against these cards in order to succeed so like rafine is a card that like with the ward one for example even these cheap efficient answers sometimes struggle to answer right and rafine actually like outgrows cut down pretty quickly so like that's the thing that i want to keep in mind or maybe you might think to yourself oh cut down so efficient it's one mana blah 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 like the fact that you can pick things in the format that outsize it really matters you know i can't remember if it was off the air or during the show but like you know, which I joked about having, like, a 3-3 artifact creature to dodge, cut down, and go for the throat. That's very much sort of what I'm looking for. And then once I know the removal, I start looking for what's the most powerful thing. Like, what is just the most obvious, like, slam it and win the game, take over, what's going on. So I think in Standard right now, to use the example... Like, what's my
0: Haymaker, right? What's my
1: I win mm-hmm. card? Okay. Yeah, so, like, in Standard, I would say Rafine and Shieldred are some of that. And there's some amount of, like, the domain ramp, like, attracts a Sunfall package... Um, those are kind of the things that jump out to me. I, it's unclear at the time of this recording what is actually the best. There hasn't been a lot of pressure on it, but those are the things that jump to me. And I look for kind of like, okay, these are some of like the pillars of the format. I know what the removal is. Now that I kind of have this information, I can start thinking about why would someone play this soldier's deck? Because the soldier's deck doesn't do any of those things. So why are we doing <laughs> this? Right. Uh-huh. And, you know, like one thing that I learned a long time ago in Magic that really helped me was Brad Nelson on a Kaladesh preview stream was talking about these vehicle cards that we had never seen before. And he's like, listen, I can spend all day telling you why these cards might be bad. And I can point, I can poke holes in any argument you want. But to be like really good at magic, you need to figure out what could make these cards good and what is good about them. Because Mm -hmm. that's what separates the good from the great. Mm -hmm. And I really took that to heart. And so to me, it's like, okay, to use the same example, the soldier stack, it's like, all right, Goes on the ground low and goes wide, generates lots of bodies for one card. So these like Esper decks that are one for one you a bunch, then they get kind of got. And then it has your cards like make disappear and other things that can punish these Wrath decks. And you know they're also very low to the ground. So if you spend the first couple turns not doing much playing triumphs, I'm going to run you over. You play your one big spell, boom, make disappear, you're dead. You know, and mm-hmm. those kind of things can inform be like, okay, so that's the strength of this deck. It's kind of preying on those things. Is it good enough? Does that make it the like, the like one of the best decks to make it a Tier 1 deck? That I don't know. But I know a little bit about what, what's going on there, and that can be like an important part of the puzzle to me. Because you might see something like this other deck. This, let's talk about Theoretical Gruul deck that doesn't exist, right? You might be like, dang, Theoretical Gruul deck looks really good. It's a little weak to some of the kill spells. It's a little weak to the Wraths. But like, why isn't Theoretical Gruul deck a bigger part of the format? And then you remember listen, Esper and Domain are two of the best decks, and they make up 25-30% of the metagame, but the rest of the metagame exists too, and that deck's actually just really bad against the Soldier's play pattern, and the Mono-Red play pattern, and the Demir Schooner play pattern, and all those sort of things, so I think you really need to take a holistic view of kind of like how cards line up and how they interact, and it's really easy, and you see players do it all the time. They build some deck that beats the best deck, and they've done it, you know, they've crafted their perfect bullet that can ko me as like yep. the this is the foil right yeah. yeah exactly and then it's like guess what you've got to. F- it's like the belcher thing from earlier right if you pair into me you win but you got to pair into me you know and i'm mm-hmm. only going to be 15 percent of the room and you got to mm-hmm. consistently do it because it's also magic your deck might be. the rest yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> have fun beating murktide have fun beating you know uh soldiers or whatever good luck
0: yes Yes. so I'm thinking about the uh is it DMC where Oko was just running a mock and some people play blue white control or mm-hmm. like some ways to to blank that strategy so mm-hmm. there's always this kind of uh, interesting heuristic of like when do you just play the best deck versus when are you playing a deck that potentially beats the best deck a significant amount of the time and mm-hmm. also has game against the other. I don't want to say outliers, but I think mm-hmm. in that event, like Oko was just so dominant that, I'd, like, if it wasn't one of the top two or three decks, it was basically a rogue deck, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, such
0: a narrow metagame. It's it's a really hard question to ask. Yeah. You yeah. So it sounds like if I can use a terrible generalization of what you just told me. Oh, I'd
1: love that. Uh, Let's do it. Twitter, uh, terrible generalization Twitter, Twitter. <laughs> by
0: a, a spike tryhard James. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be like four things on your checklist. One is like everything is contextual, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like you're, you're not just trying to beat the best deck it, or you are, maybe you are the best deck, you're trying to beat the best deck, but what's the other 25, 30% of the metagame? Why mm-hmm. doesn't that gruel deck exist in, in a vacuum, right? So contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned things about like blanking value like because mm-hmm. you're, you're talking about removal. So it's like, what are things I can do to invalidate or outvalue um, the game plan that or the macro that my opponent mm-hmm. has, right? Um, another one is just like, on the checklist, I would call this number three is just like, do the powerful thing. Like, just just find a powerful thing, and how you get there. Because sometimes mm-hmm. I think Magica oftentimes is just like, do the powerful thing, but in relation to blanking what they're trying to do to you, mm-hmm. in relation to context. Mm-hmm. And I might dare add the fourth thing on the checklist, which is like, just be consistent, because you can't just do the powerful thing, but never do it like every game or every match. So it's like, mm-hmm. you got to hit all four of these things is my terrible generalization of what you tried to say, I think.
1: I like it. I, I, I think that's a good way of taking a bunch of Masonisms and concealing it down into a TikTok. <laughs> I think you did a good job there. We have pure, concentrated Mason. I don't know. i never played in a PT, so I, <laughs> sure. I have no idea.
0: I'm just kind of talking out of my butt. So That's fair. Yeah. I wish I had
1: deferred one of my PT invites. So here we are. We're all doing it together.
0: (laughs) That's right. Was there some sort of conflict of interest in like working on MH and then playing a PT? Was that what it was or?
1: No. So um, I I worked on MH3 um, and then I worked, uh, I played pro tour all Be one which my time on MH3 ended the week of the pro tour. I guess technically the, the Friday before. And then I flew out to Philadelphia to play the pro tour. I just say I wish I had deferred because and it never even occurred to me to defer until literally I'm on the plane to get there where it was just like I had accepted the job to be a contractor and go to Seattle and work on MH3 for two months uh, before even the RC. And uh, Dan Musser, who is the manager of Play Design and worked on the MH3 team it was the one who talked to me and said like, you've got the job if you want it. And I was like, obviously I'll take it. You know, <laughs> and so anyways, he was the one who was like, Don't worry, it's not a conflict of interest. If you end up qualifying at the RC, you know, uh, since this is a modern set, um, you will not be unable to play the tournament. You just, if you work on a standard legal set, you can't play Pro Tours, I believe for like the year of which they come out or something like that. There's some weird stipulation that I never really learned because I didn't work on a standard set. Um, But then I ended up qualifying, which was woohoo, great. And then I realized like, oh dang, I'm going to be focusing on modern. And it just never occurred to me to ask for the deferral uh to you know the next pt so i could actually really try and stuff and this was my second pt too so like some part of me likes to believe that first pt mason would have figured out to defer um but you know (laughs) i was just so hyped to like work on magic and get to do the thing that i i love and want to do as a full-time career and so i was just so focused in on modern and trying you know uh to make sure i don't release ragavan 2 or whatever you know and just doing my hard work and so i i sometimes joke that you know People better appreciate Modern Horizons three because I, I spewed a PT on it, but it was still like a really fun, great experience, all things considered. But
0: yeah, are you allowed to talk about what your experience is like working for Wizards?
1: I can to some degree, and then uh, you know when if you obfuscate be... the details, yeah, I mean like I had a lot of fun. I um I am someone who wants to do game design. As, like, a job, Um and do, getting to do this was sort of a dream come true in a lot of ways, where it's like, no matter what, I get to work on Magic, which is this huge part of my life. You can see from Emmerkel behind me if you're watching the video. It's this, like, big part of my life. I met a lot of my friends, a lot of my loved ones via this game, and no matter what happens, at the end of the day, James, I got to work on Magic, and hopefully I made it a better game. And I, and I hopefully helped, you know, make someone have a better play experience, you know, by playing some awful games of Magic or whatever, and you know, getting a card changed or something like that. Hopefully, they never don't even notice that I worked on something like that. You know, and that opens the door for me to like, you know, I have some experience in the industry now, and so now it's like if other opportunities arise, it's like, hey, I worked with Wizards of the Coast, which you know, specifically for card game type stuff, is like going to Harvard. You know, it's like, hey, I went to Yale, we were at Harvard. You know, like, uh, entry level job. Let's let's have a conversation. Get me past this interest stage. so. Um, that part of it was all really cool and getting to tackle some of these problems and think about magic in this way was so unique and so awesome. Getting to design cards was so unique and so awesome Um, and getting just to like fidget with them and try to think about like, what are the goals with this card and how will this make players happy or unhappy is something that was really cool. And all in all, it was just a really great experience and it's something that like I cannot wait to talk in more clear picture detail about, but Overall, the experience was great, and I, I will say this: the thing that I think frustrates me the most, uh, especially after having like done it, and this is a weird thing too, that sometimes like gets brought up to me. So I'm going to use your platform a second to get the message out. I didn't do what like aspiring spike in like canister did, and they did like a file pass a couple times. So like, I think they, got they were the asked file. to
0: consult and give feedback on certain cards, like exactly. Lord of the Rings cards. Yeah. Right. So they,
1: my understanding is they were given like a set list basically, and they were like, hey what are your thoughts on this blah 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 feedback iterate feedback iterate feedback iterate i did a similar ish thing except i was in the building and i was playing with like proxy cards and like doing like they do in ffl at the actual place and i i was in the old now no longer building of wizards of the coast like on floor two playing games all day and like so having it was actual meetings. more play testing or running through real scenarios yeah i i was like you know updating decks and building new decks and like you know, solving problems and, like, having whiteboard meetings of, like, we think X card's too strong, we're too weak, or we need a card for this type of thing, you know? Uh, Admittedly, the latter happened a lot less than the other two, but a lot of it was, like, okay, Mason, BBD, Brad, we need you all to, like, go tackle these problems and come back and talk to us, and then we need to present solutions to the problem, you know? I'm, I'm a big believer in, like, actionable feedback, and that's, like, a big thing they seem to like there of, like, all right, you've told us what the problem is, but do you have a solution? Sure, yeah. You Don't know? just and come
0: like... with problems, come with solutions as well.
1: Exactly, yeah. So that's something where, like, that's what my job was. And I was just there, and I lived in a Marriott hotel that was, like, you know, 500 feet away. Mm-hmm. And I walked to my hotel room and back to the office, and, like, that was sort of why I did. And I hung out with friends outside of work, but, like, that just was my full life immersion in magic,
0: it sounds like.
1: Oh, yeah. Right it, it was full immersion, and it, it was sick. I mean, it really was, like... A dream come true. Earlier today, we recorded our end of the year Constructor Criticism podcast ahead of the holidays, and uh, I was talking about how, like, it's crazy to think about my year in Magic because it's been such a whirlwind, and it started with, like, a dream come true in, like, nine different ways, and some of them I can't even talk about yet, and it was just an amazing sort of moment And like time to live in. And I loved like every second of it. And I loved working in the building. I loved working with these people who care a lot and they want you to have a fun time. That's what I was going to say about like from the inside, the frustration is like people act like they don't care. They don't listen. They do, but like it is a really hard job. And a lot of times I see a lot of people who seem to know all the answers. And when I ask them questions that are a little bit harder, not always, but a lot of them don't have very good answers. And I'm not saying that people in the building have the perfect answers. But I'll tell you, they try a lot and that, you know, if you had to answer and serve all the like masters that they do and all the same goals, I don't know if you would have better solutions. And I don't know if you could figure all this stuff out with like out the knowledge that we have, you know, everyone says like, oh, it's so obvious that this card would be broken. And it's like, I mean, maybe it's not, or like maybe something could change last minute and some people didn't see it and it got through Mm -hmm. the door. Like. It's a physical game. It's not like Snap or Hearthstone or whatever where you can just change something, you know? Like, Marvel Snap updates their game, like, every other week. Like, that is just not what Magic gets to do, and it just totally is a different beast. So they, they yeah. care a lot, and they are trying really, really hard to make it... Uh, a game that you love. Like, I, I think I just saw it today or yesterday, like an interview of Melissa's coming out, uh, that you did with her soon. And like, Melissa, Tora, yes, mm-hmm. I
0: I've had certainly my share of Watsi staff on this mm-hmm. podcast. And yeah. even though I've never worked at wizards, mm-hmm. I can tell you for a fact, I can back you up. Like mm-hmm. every time we talk about game design with Watsi staff, it just makes me realize how impossibly challenging it is. You're, you're designing things for so many different constituents Sometimes you're doing things with such a massive amount of team cooperation with timelines, deadlines, and um, something gets passed over in a file, like nothing's ever malicious, but it's just mm-hmm. like there are a lot of moving parts, and if you think you can do it better, you would be totally utterly wrong that's yeah. my that's <laughs> this is from hours and hours of conversation with different members of Watsi staff, mm-hmm. including Melissa, Carmen, and others. I think I know this for a fact now because I've done so much behind the scenes work with conversations with these folks. Yeah. These extremely strong people, but it's, (laughs) you know, it's, it's a team effort. And Mm -hmm. when you have a team, like it's not, Mm
1: -hmm. it's, it's challenging. It's really hard. It's also really hard to be like, no, you other nine X people are wrong. Like this is the thing. Like there was one thing that, you know, I was like on week two, I was like, Hey, Hey, I think this card's a problem. Here are my reasons. Oh, and sorry, uh, I, I'll are just sure? interject one yeah. one
0: other thing. Like, yeah. it's not even just magic game design. I've talked about mm-hmm. oh, game yeah. design with like Patrick Sullivan and other mm-hmm. people about like like yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just no, going to say good. it's really hard. It's not just magic; just game design mm-hmm. in general. So
1: no, yeah, it is. I, I was just going to say that like sometimes you might even have the right idea, but like it doesn't look that way. Or, you know, whatever. And sometimes she just takes you having to, like, see it in different context or have it explained in a different way. Like, sometimes it just doesn't click or, like, you don't see the full ramifications. And I had an example of that where, like, on week two I saw this card that was this problem. And I kind of foresaw it being, like, really bad. Uh, You know, and then not everyone really believed me, which was fine. And so I just played some more of people and kind of showed them. And then, you know, a couple weeks later kind of, like, brought up again. I was like, hey... Here's these problems for these reasons once again. In addition, these things, I believe these things to be true. We ended up making a change to try and prevent that. You know, and I I don't know if I got it right or wrong, right? I think I was right. I think I helped avoid a problem. Maybe I accidentally created a new one that I won't even realize, or we didn't realize until all the cards come out, or something in the far future because of what I did happens, right? But you're just acting the best faith that you can, that you are presenting the best game possible. And sometimes things fall through the cracks because of that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just so hard. And I think I think mm-hmm.
0: your example is a really good one because really at the end of the day, you have to be happy. This is any job, not just design, mm-hmm. but it's like if you speak your truth and you give the inputs to the higher-ups or your your colleagues, at the end of the day, you have to just be happy with that because it's not mm-hmm. going to 100% be taken, but like, okay, this is me, Mason. I've done the work. This is where I think the problems are. This is documented. Mm-hmm. That's At the end of the day, that's all you can do. And it's mm-hmm. like you're putting your argument forward, your position forward, having your point of view because that's what they hire you for in mm-hmm. good faith. And that's really all you can do. That's literally mm-hmm. all you can do. And I think you have to just be able to live with that. Like it's the the thing that people may not understand is that, I mean, because we're playing a game, like life is not like this adversarial thing where you're trying mm-hmm. to like win your argument over somebody else, especially when you're a magic designer. Like you're just trying to like work with other people in good faith to to make this thing as good as possible, but there's, there's, you know, death of a thousand cuts. There's always opportunities for somebody to get it wrong. Like, you know, six months later. And it's just like, it's not, it's not malicious at all, but you just have to do the best you can, like given your point of view. Right.
1: Yep. 100%. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, wow, I've, I've been rambling a lot this episode. <laughs> <No worries. You're laughs> uh, <good. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, let, I want to actually like just, um, change the topic a bit. Mm-hmm. People have asked you about coaching because you're a magic coach. Mm -hmm. But I want to turn the tables. I want to ask you if I'm a magic player, how do I know when I should seek coaching? Think about all the things we talked about in the past about in this interview about like foundational and like doing some work and getting like cyborg guides. Like, is there a particular point in time where it makes sense for a magic player to seek one on one coaching?
1: Yeah, I think everyone's different and everyone learns in different ways and some people it would be more helpful sooner and some people more helpful later right um my my guess at an answer to like the aggregate is if you feel like you have been trying and sort of stagnating and you can't figure out the why on stuff and there's maybe things that are confusing or there's something where you want to understand some element to the game and you can't find a resource on it, all of these things are good reasons to get coaching. I have some people who, you know, get a lot of coaching and I see them like, you know, bi-weekly or once a month or every, every other week, or, or sorry every week, excuse me. Um, and there's some people who I see like once every two or three months and they come in and they have their Google doc with like 10 questions and they're like, all right, Mason, let's go, you know? And like, we work through those questions And they'll schedule a session if something comes up that's like they think is super important, but otherwise they wait a little bit, they go out and they work on it and they come back, you know? And my answer to the question really is, is like, if you feel like you're struggling and you can't come up with a why and you feel like you need a little bit of help, that's a good reason to get a coach, to get someone who can help you with solving the problems that you think you have, right? And not everyone, not like, no coach is a one size fit all situation, but it is something where like, You know, let's say you're like struggling with fundamentals, that I might be someone you want to reach out to. If you've been playing Amulet Titan for a long time and you're struggling there, you might want to reach out to like Dom Harvey, right? There's a lot of different things you could do there, but I think that in a very similar way to a cyborg guide, if you feel like you're struggling and you don't understand the why and the concepts, that's a good time.
0: Mm. Okay. I'm trying to think about my own situation, right? Because I've Mm -hmm. been grinding magic in different formats for a while. I played a little bit of. Modern, actually, it's funny. I didn't play modern until uh, MH two, so I never knew the two ships passing in the night. Modern. I, I mm-hmm. just started playing more recently, and I've been playing Legacy for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I think I'm. Let's use myself as an example. Yeah. Like I'm. Yeah. I think I'm good enough to like just like win F and M's or the occasional mm-hmm. challenge or the occasional like five zero in a league, whatever it's mm-hmm. a league, right? But it's yeah. I, I'm good enough for that. Like I'm at that level where I mm-hmm. know the fundamentals. I I think I know the fundamentals. I think I mm-hmm. know how magic works on at at a certain Mm -hmm. competency, like, Mm -hmm. but I'm feeling like I am not like top eightying RCQs. I'm not I'm not like Mm -hmm. going above that level. So is it is it the right time for me to seek coaching? And if so, like, what are some of the things that I should be seeking? Like, it's not just like, Oh, I'm gonna hire Mason as a coach. But like, what are the kinds of things that I should come to the table with in terms of a list of questions or otherwise?
1: Well, the first thing I always kind of ask people when they're sort of in this spot, or because you know I had this kind of conversation at like events a lot, and when I ask you, James, and maybe something to think about, maybe you can answer on the show if you want to, is what are your goals with magic? You know, if your goal is you want to play the RC, right, and you want to maybe play a pro tour, or you just want to generally improve in some way and you want to get better, might be a great time to get a coach. If your goal is like, yeah, I want to be the best Murfolk player there's ever been. Maybe a coach would be helpful, but maybe you should go out and work on that. some some stuff in that regard more and come back later, Mm -hmm. right? So I think it matters a lot on kind of like what your goals are because first off, there's no wrong goal. That's my favorite part of Magic is you, me, and Dupree can all interact in totally different ways with Magic, and we all get a great experience out of it. And there's Mm -hmm. no wrong goal. The only wrong goal is lying to yourself about what your goal is. Yeah. So look internally and figure out what you want that to be. Let, let's let's yeah let's yeah. role play i'll just tell yeah. you my answer because right? yeah. it's, it's actually yeah, it's yeah. my
0: actual answer and this might be mm-hmm. useful for somebody listening like yeah it's it's the first like i'm trying to like make the rc mm-hmm. uh or make the pt at some point and mm-hmm. i feel like when i am in these like rcqs i can be like because of certain a certain competency i have with mm-hmm. like the way i grind or maybe maybe i already like bought the cyborg guy for the deck I'm playing. i already like watched streams of popular people. So I kind of know how people think about lines and how they go through the process with the deck. I feel like I have a pretty optimized build and I know why I'm cyborging cards, how I'm approaching mm-hmm. matchups. But it's like, I still have this feeling like when I'm playing that RCQ, there's just like five or six people that always seem to outplay me. And I don't know mm-hmm. why. Like, I feel like they've always got my number. They're always mm-hmm. the ones top eighting and I'm always the one that's out of the top eight because whenever I run into them, it just feels like, I get run over and I don't mm-hmm. exactly know why I'm getting run over. I'm kind of in that situation.
1: Sure. I mean, it's hard for me to know James without like seeing your games and stuff like that. My guess as this sort of from doing this a lot is that they might have a better understanding of how the matchups played and you might have a solid understanding of what's going on in these games, but not a great understanding. You might also be sort of lacking in, uh, macro game planning and sort of having a hard time of like thinking about how the game ends I, I, this is very funny but like an anime i watched a long time ago was a card game anime and they talked about something called a winning image which i really took to heart which was like imagining how the game is gonna win helps you make your plays, you know, whatever. And for them, it was, like, right. the heart of the cards whatever. But I do think there's something to that about, like... That's, like,
0: an anime convention that's actually true. Like, you, yeah. they actually imagine, like, what happens at the end of the fight or whatever. And Yeah, exactly. You should go, yeah. And
1: I, I've heard there's something about that with boxing, too. But someone who told me that would, like, definitely sound like they heard it from a thing, heard it from a thing, heard it from a YouTube video. And so one day I want to go research, like, boxing, you know, stuff. But, like, I don't know. Take that with a grain of salt in the boxing thing. But... Regardless, like, that could be what's going on. It might also be deck selection. It might be, you might be struggling in sideboarding. Um, like, you might have the sideboard guy, but you might not understand, like, once again, along the same way, like, bigger picture of the planning. You might be doing small micro errors. You might be, like, playing kind of sloppy. Um, all of these things could be the thing. And, like, very typically, like, you know, like, to fully role play here, like, you know, it's a, you're asking me, like, how the sessions go. Like, the first one, I'm probably going to spend the first ten-ish minutes me trying to, like, get an idea of where you're at with a few things. Then we'll spend the next 50 minutes or so sort of talking about something uh, and working on a skill. And then typically the second or third session, depending on kind of how things go in the first one, I will want to watch some gameplay and talk with you through some games. Like Magic Online, if you don't know, this is a great tool for players out there. It records all the games you play on the computer you're watching from. So I think technically it's like 150, but like that's a lot of games. And so you can go back and you can watch your games and you can click through each individual action. And so I like very, very rarely play games with the people I am coaching. Like we are almost never in the leagues. It's not real
0: time. You're analyzing on the second session, the replays mind you.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes we'll have like a lot of replay sessions. Sometimes we won't, depends on the person. But what I love about the replays is is I like tell them like, Hey, you're going to be like in this situation, if you're not about to do it, be like James, you're going to be really tempted to tell me what past James did. Don't worry, I'll see it on the reply. Let's talk about this right now, as if we're watching the streamer James and what we think we would be doing, and tell me your thought process. And let's work almost through like this a together. third party, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you know, and like ideally, I try to, you know, luckily with like the week or two weeks between sessions, um, it, they sometimes forget, but the thing was they like don't have the answer. Um, ideally, some people finish their homework right before the session, which is you know life imitates uh school or whatever. But regardless, um. You know, we go through that, and we talk about it, and that's what I care about. Because remember what we talked about earlier, I don't care about winning or losing. That's useless. Who cares? Like, if you want to, like, actually win more games of Magic, having a better understanding and a better thought process and better decision-making skills, that's the stuff that's going to lead to actually winning. So let's have a conversation and figure out what play we should be making and why. And, like, I have, like, some lessons that I, like, have with people where, you know... I'm, like, working on upgrading these things, too, but, like, having, like, scenarios built. where like, talking about... um, I call mm-hmm. it telling a story. Everyone else calls it hand-reading. And there's a, a reason why I could get into about why I call it that and other people call it a different thing. end of the day, it's a hand-reading lesson. And sometimes we'll, like, talk about that and we'll work on it and be like, okay, you know, our opponent led on this pain land on turn one, right? Oh, as in what could they have and
0: what are you trying exactly. to play around?
1: Yeah, and, like, if they kept a seven-card hand and they go pain land, pain land, like in, let's say, Pioneer... Well, their hand's probably pretty strong if they kept, like, double pain land. That's, like, a pretty mm-hmm. painful start to the game. And so it might be like, okay, what kind of hand would tempt you to do that if we didn't see anything on turn one, right? Inversely, too, right? Let's say, you know, last turn, on turn two, we decided to make a play where we played into Fatal Push, right? It's like, hey, they have Fatal Push. They're definitely going to do this. We need to take a risk. We're going to slam X card. Amalia, let's say, you know? Mm-hmm. They don't Fatal Push. They pass the turn they play Blackleaf Cliffs after going Painland, Painland, Blackleaf Cliffs. What do you think they drew? I'll give you a hint. It's probably Blackleaf Cliffs. <laughs> a, you know, like, they, they wouldn't just play a Painland beforehand, especially, you know, this land, there's taps pretty soon. So in this next turn, when if I'm thinking, right, I'm looking at my hand, and I'm like, oh god, I lose the Fatal Push this turn. Think to yourself, wait, almost assuredly don't have it. They would have done it before. They drew the Blackleaf Cliffs. I pay attention to their lands. Play this, go. You know? And there's, like, degrees to that too right like if your opponent goes turn one blackleaf cliffs and like pioneer and then they go turn two hive the eye tyrant if they had hive on turn one they would have played hive almost assuredly there's like no real red cards that you play Mm -hmm. for one mana these next play and hive will enter tapped sooner than blackleaf cliffs will so Mm -hmm. like you can assume your opponent is competent and smart and able to figure out these very obvious things which i think is a fair assumption and i try to always assume my opponents are you know at my level if not higher and it's like, okay, well, I know that, you know, my turn one play that would assuredly, let's say Landor Elf is going to get Fatal Pushed, I now know that this turn two play is probably pretty safe, barring their next draw step, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if they didn't Fatal Push the first one. So, and there's some amount of, like, patience, and, like, maybe they value things differently, right? It's not like this perfect, like, with these tricks, you're going to see through your opponent's hand and know all. But it's yeah. like, you can come to pretty reasonable conclusions, and there's a lot of things like that. So... We, we work on things like those kind of lesson plans. That's like an example. And then like, we'll, we'll work on something and then we'll like replay a game and we'll like look at the replay and talk about working that skill. So like a thing that a lot of players struggle with is like big picture planning and thinking about how the games are going to go and kind of working also through the turns at hand. So like thinking a turn ahead is pretty easy for people. Uh, once they, once they get it, they sort of get it. But like my turn rough outline of your turn sketch of my next turn is what i call it where it's like you yeah. have a loose idea that actually really confuses a lot of people is what i found is they're really good at figuring out what the opponent's gonna do but if i tell them like okay that happens what's your next turn gonna look like they're like uh draw steps like
0: a it's like a flow chart <laughs> you're constantly recalculating right mm-hmm. it's like it's like how do you how are you what's your th- what's your chess move like three turns from now kind of thing exactly
1: yep yeah so we work on those kind of things
0: okay If I take what you said to the very extreme, in a very extreme way, does it stand to reason that this is kind of outside coaching, but does it stand to reason that the moment that I know how to play around my opponents and I can rationalize or explain every move I make, does that, is that the moment where I just become a masterful magic player is when I can do that? I can literally explain every single, single step I take and I, Mm -hmm. and I can I can also articulate like mm-hmm. everything I'm trying to play around because I assume my opponent is playing optimally and uh, game theory and mm, assuming, uh, is yeah. signaling certain things.
1: Yeah, and assuming that your like thoughts are also sound, right? Coherence and makes sense. You might have plans for everything, and I'm like, bro, like, why would <laughs> they do that? That's not a plan. Yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah. So I stomped myself that way. My plan is to way. hope that they're not gonna
0: draw anything for the next five turns. Just kidding.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, like, you know, sometimes, man, I've been I've been in tournament spots where it's, like, land for five turns is the game plan. It's not a good one, but it's the plan I got. Uh, no, but, like, jokes aside, like, assuming, you know, um, that you are, like, rational and, like, these things are good sound logic or whatever, one, it's hard to have, like, the perfect optimal play in every sort of spot or whatever because there are so many variables. Um, but assuming, like, within good faith here, I think that's, like, kind of the first step in, like, really becoming, like, a matchable great player. And I think there are other things, like, deck selection, and technical play, and ability to sideboard, and that's, like, just one step of it. And I think some people really excel at, like, that, and then they sometimes are, like, pretty good at other things. But, like, if you excel in one of these areas and you're pretty good, you can get really far in Magic just doing that, you know? Mm -hmm. And you could easily Mm -hmm. make the RC, for example, if you, like, excelled at that and just, you know, had those kind of moments. Like, one thing that really, um, I never really coached Jessie Robkin, but she definitely was kind of like the protogenitus and she jokes that she's my number one pupil, so I'm going to you know, say I coached (laughs) her or whatever, but I, I would play with her and she would she was very smart, but she would just like walk head first into things and not like think about what the opponent could be doing or why, and it was never this bad, but the example I sometimes give is like, the opponent was playing like a mono black deck that clearly plays Orcish Bowmaster, and she would be surprised when they flashed in Bowmaster She'd be like, what? And it, and it was never actually that bad, but it was that right, right. kind of level. Yeah, sure. that's the dramatized version of it. And it was like, Jesse, you're really smart. Think about what your opponent is doing. Like, they, they probably have a plan, you know? And, you know, now she's like, that's one of the things where, like, I think it really helped Jesse take the step up from, like, strong magic player, had, like, energy, top eight, et cetera, to becoming, like, that phenom. And, like, doing everything was, like, things like that. And just, like, that one little push really helped her and then that push cascaded into all these other things. Then she opened up all these new connections and met all these people and learned all these things, you know, and like, it's a lot of great work from her, but like one of the things I know that really helped her was stopping and slowing down and thinking about what makes sense for my opponent to have here, you know, and like not being surprised. And I remember us talking about how I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I, I want to say it's like when the first energy she topped me after we became friends. And it was like, she told me like, I wasn't surprised all day. Like no one ever did a thing that was like a stock normal deck mm-hmm. that I was I was never surprised cuz I thought about I
0: expected it. this as a possibility exactly
1: sort of and I count and like maybe I played into it you know like I I expected them to have collected company or whatever you know and they had it and I was going to lose to it if it hit the perfect 2 but I also knew I couldn't win with the other cards mm-hmm. so I made a you know I said call have coco and hit the right cards and they did and I lost and it sucks I'm going home you know mm-hmm. but like those sort of things are, I think what matter a lot in like making or breaking people is that kind of stuff and like having a good plan and thinking through your turn and executing, etc. So what yeah. you described, I do think is like an infinity stone gauntlet of like the first yeah. little, you know, that's the time stone, but there are a lot of things I think really get there and it can be really hard. And A lot of people will play magic for a very long time. I think and never master a majority of those. You know, I don't think I've mastered most of these things by any means, but I'm working on it and I want to get there. So, I'm not sure if
0: anyone's ever asked you this, but of Mm -hmm. the students that you or pupils that you've coached, if some of them have not successfully leveled up from your counsel, why do you think that is? And this is not because Mm -hmm. you're a bad coach. I'm not trying to (laughs) imply that. But are there certain Mm -hmm. things about limiting factors about players that prevent them from
1: actually reaching their own personal next level? That's a great question. I would say I typically am of the belief that most people, if they try their hardest and dedicate time and energy and are willing to stick to it. Because Magic is a marathon, not a race. No one tournament defines you. I believe basically the super majority can get to the Pro Tour. They might not be able to consistently get there. They might be, you know, they're definitely punching above their weight class to get there. But I believe people can do it. I think the things that get in people's way are a few things. One is ego. Two is self-image, which is a little different. Like, they see themselves as X player. Like, oh, I'm a control player, so I only play control. Or like, oh, you I'm You mean
0: not- over-labeling of the self kind of yeah, thing? Yeah,
1: exactly. Like, well, they, like, they aren't willing to do other things and they don't branch out because they've identified themselves as this. And they're not willing to, like put down what's fun or how they view themselves in order to reach their other goal of make the pro tour. Right? So for an example, like I hate playing camp trips. I cannot stand casting brainstorm and ponder and oh consider. come on, you play
0: dress down. Just
1: kidding. Uh, yeah, well the us someone made that joke before and it's like it's great. You know what Dressdown says draw a card. I don't have to think I love draw a card. But Mm -hmm. when I have to like fiddle these fiddly ones, I just get so bored. Which are the top three, or which ones? Yeah, like pondering is like I gotta look at these three cards and min max everything, and this is so much fun, and my opponent gets to sit there for thirty seconds. Like Mm -hmm. that is not super fun for me. I love that some of the people love that. That is great. Mm -hmm. Not very fun to me. When I play Legacy, I play the ponder decks. Because when I'm playing Legacy, it's almost always a team event, and I don't want to let my friends down. And I don't play Elves, which is my favorite deck in Legacy by a mile. You know, I've got my glimpse, I got my cantrip there, but like I don't play my deck because it's not going to help. Like it isn't as good. I'm willing to put these things aside to reach my goals. So you're trying you know, to win. You're trying to exactly. win. You're not yeah. trying
0: to let your your self identity or ego get mm-hmm. in the way. Hopefully,
1: exactly, yeah. And so I try to be a reasonable deck gamer and pick a reasonable, good deck at minimum. It might not be the best deck. It might be a little bit off the beaten pack, but it's a reasonable deck. No one's going to give me, like, the stink eye when I play it. So I think those are two of the things. And I think sometimes, honestly, just, like, t- being too results-oriented really matters for players and really holds them back. Where they're like, well, I haven't done it yet. And it's like, well, you didn't really try. You know? And they're like, well, I played all season. And it's like, how many RSCUs did you play? play three it's like okay mm-hmm. i understand that like unfortunately you're in a position where three is as many as you could play i want you to know that is like not an unreasonable amount for you to miss on right like a lot of people play two in one weekend you know and so mm-hmm. it is simply a thing of like you unfortunately are in a position where you're, like you know hypothetical person it has mm-hmm. you know a partner and a kid and a job and only gets to play one weekend a month per season Totally reasonable. I think you can do it. You know, it just take you a little longer and especially if you're doing these other things, they can compound on it. And we need to make sure that we are doing, we are playing with magic with our goal in mind. If our goal is just, we want to work on improving. We don't really care if we make it. We want to play the decks we like while doing that totally valid goal, but don't tell yourself that like your goal is this other thing when it's not you know and like really focusing on that i think those are the biggest be honest things. with yourself like what are yeah. your
0: actual goals like if mm-hmm. if that's what your goal is then you got to figure out how to optimize for that goal right don't exactly. don't bs yourself basically
1: mm-hmm. yeah like my goal this last year in magic has not been to like really push myself in a crazy way i just haven't had time to i've been doing too many other things you know mm-hmm. my goal was to save modern uh that was a joke but <laughs> i swear Wasi, it was a joke bring me back for the marvel uh anyways but uh mason so, the savior
0: clark right here that's right yeah yeah <laughs>
1: anything you liked about modern horizons 3 was all me everything you hate was, was in fact everybody Nelson. else uh yeah, just it was me. You, add it to your melee complaints and we'll see you there you know and so um you know there's a form for you right over there but no jokes aside like you know my goals weren't in line with that you know like our goal recently has been like i've been like taking the approach to getting healthy as I drank my Coca-Cola earlier uh, to getting healthy. Like I did magic early on where like, it's a priority where every day I'm going to the gym where it's a rest day. And I'm like watching what I'm eating and like, you know, like I just was drinking a Coke, which is not healthy, but like, I am also like being realistic with myself that like, if I go cold Turkey and quitting these things, it's going to make me yeah. not get there. But I'm committed that like a year from now, if you have another interview with Mason, It's the Chad meme, Mason, you know, and I'm going to get there and maybe it's like a year and a half. Maybe it's two years. Maybe I slip up a little bit. Maybe something Mm -hmm. happens, but I know what my goal is, is I want to be healthier. I haven't liked myself for a long time. I want to change a lot of things about myself. I know it's going to cost me more money later in life if I don't do it now. I have this opportunity. Let's take it and let's do it. And that's my goal. You know, that's one of my big goals in life. My other goal is like get a game design job and like continue improving coaching and like become a better coach. So I can help more people reach their goals. My goals have not been like. To go around and play all these SCGs and stuff. Like my other goals have been like improve at commentary. You know I do a lot of commentary for the NRG series. And I hope to do commentary for our season pro tour someday. So I'm trying to like work on my craft there. And like I'm also. You know at the beginning of the show. I mentioned like there's more to Mason. And like there's these other things. I make it a point. That like at some point the magic stops in the day. Like I have to do more than magic. I cannot just be someone who only plays magic and burns out. Like, it might just be that my life for a little while is, you know, one piece and well, as I catch up, you know, and magic. But there's going to be something else that goes on in the day. You know, like, it will not be, nor will ever be, all magic all the time. Even when I was working on MH3, I would I would try really hard. It was hard, I'll admit, but it was really hard. I tried really hard to stop and actually enjoy other things, you know, and mm-hmm. play League of Legends with friends like on my computer or talk to somebody on the phone or watch, you know, an anime or a movie or something or go out and do something and go trivia night. Like I was making an effort to be more than just magic because I want to be a well-rounded, a well-rounded and, uh, you know, complete person. I don't just want to be some encyclopedic guide to magic and design and improving like that would make me really sad if that was all there was to Mason. You know, if all someone could say to Mason was like, oh, Mason is like... Hopefully incredible. that's not the only thing
0: on your tombstone kind of thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I want it to be like, you know, like someone's like, what's the deal on Mason? You know, they might say like, yeah, he's smart about magic. He's a great teacher. But they might also say, dude's really funny or dude's really compassionate. Or he'll help you out in a situation, you know, where you can trust him, you know, if you're ever in a situation to get out of a party or whatever, you know, like... One of the highest compliments I ever got was someone said, like, oh, if I'm ever in a situation where I feel uncomfortable, I should find you. You know? And I mm. was like, wow, that means a lot. That means you know? a lot, yeah. Yeah, like, that is like incredibly high praise that someone was willing to say that and felt that way. And, like, I don't know. That's the kind of stuff where, like, to me, there's more to life than magic. I don't know exactly how we got here, but. That's where I am. That's my answer to the question. <laughs> and you know, I've talked to enough
0: competitive magic players on this show now where mm-hmm. I've created this sort of generalized theory. I call it the th- the paradox of magic. It's like when, when your life is 100% about magic or 99% about magic, you actually don't do as well as when you try to balance your... Magic life with other things. Like, I've talked to so many people that, for whatever reasons, when they stepped away or took a break or didn't make it all consuming and they were not completely results oriented, strangely, that's the paradox. That's when they actually started to see some greater success, is when they weren't thinking about it or playing the game. Obviously, there are caveats to this. They probably already put in like their 10,000 hours and things like that. And, but I have seen that to be kind of a a pattern, it's like when your life is not all about magic, you can actually get better at magic. Strangely enough,
1: I agree. Like, we've seen strotsky tweet, you know, like, I'm retiring or whatever, and it became a joke. But, like, also, yeah, Brandon yeah. Decandio this last weekend, right? Decandio was kind of like, Hey. I've, you know, I've got real life stuff going on. I got this kid, this RC is kind of my swan song. It's the new one time, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And like, <laughs> you know, like, and then the Kenny qualified for the pro tour and beat me on round nine. It feels like you should have uh, scooped a homie, you know, you're quitting. Anyways, jokes aside, um, <laughs> you know, it's a situation where it's just like, but I'm not bitter. I, yeah, I'm, I'm over it. And I have only thought about it a little since we've played, but right. no, but um, it is something where it's like, I think when you have those extra pressures on yourself and like, magic becomes your full thing it like weighs down you like you know I, I haven't talked to nathan about it but i wonder how much like people calling nathan him the new Stoyer. Goat. nathan Stoyer, excuse me yeah, yeah. uh I, I like he's just madonna how... now he only needs the first name exactly so. yeah yes yeah, <laughs> yeah well drop the Stoyer. nathan's cleaner you know yeah. and it's just so you know with nathan right it's like i wonder how much like adding all this pressure that like hey kid you're the new goat or like What's it feel like to be in contention for greatest of all time already? Or, like, what does it feel like to do these sort of things? Like, that stuff can mess you up, really. Yeah, exactly. And, like, Nathan's great and had, like, good results, whatever, since he won the pro tour. But, like, and to be fair, it's, like, impossible for anyone to keep up Nathan, what Nathan was doing, right? But, like, it is a situation where, like, I wonder how much that weighs on him and how much that, like, takes him down. And, like, that's a very overt example of us kind of, like, idolizing somebody and having that moment. But I think it's very similar where it's, like, yeah, if magic is your main source of income or whatever, and things are rocky with you and your partner, and you know, like your, I don't know, your views are going down or whatever, right? And like you feel like you really need a big hit, like I assume that like makes it much harder to play, you know. And I'm very lucky and blessed that like I don't feel that way too often about my stuff. You You're know?
0: diversified, I think, is your yeah. situation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, I don't. Know, I think if you find yourself stuck in that position like James was talking about there of like, you know, there's so much on me and taking a step back. It's probably just because you need to prioritize other things in life and magic will still be here. I'm betting my whole life on magic, you know? So I hope I'm right Mm -hmm. that, you know, magic will still be here when you can take a break and come back and, you know, it will still be there to compete. It might play a little differently. There might be some cool new cards, but you know, it's going to be the same game.
0: Just taking the Nathan example on a much smaller scale for you. You you Mm -hmm. mentioned just um, when you were, popularizing the four-color Yorion deck, Mm -hmm. and there were points in time where you didn't play a lot, but you had to, like, you were forced into playing a league or you played two Mm -hmm. or three leagues. Was there pressure that you put on yourself to do well in those leagues, even though it was such a, you know, a much smaller version of, like, you know, what Nathan is going through?
1: No, one of my best friends, uh, Daniel Combs, I would talk to him, and he would always laugh at this, like, back in PPTQs. I would play a league the night before we might be on discord or whatever the voice chat at the time was. And I would two, through the league and I'd be like, lock it in. And then I'd win the PPTQ the next day. You know, like I just don't really care okay. about that, you know? Okay. And the only time I really care about that sort of stuff is like, because there's a I lot of chest care. pumping
0: there's a lot of people who are like yeah i think this is the right deck you know i literally five oh like you know 10 leagues in a row and so i'm ready to lock it in and then you get the tweet next week it's like oh i owe two drop but whatever you know like it was yeah. so, it was so hype go leaning into it i just feel like yeah. People yeah. have these like weird expectations or unrealistic expectations.
1: Yeah, I, I saw a tweet recently that I really kind of like that's kind of mean, but I think it gets the point across. It's like okay. I just beat five people I would never test with. It's time to lock in this deck for a tournament that's worth a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> across the country. No more testing. And it's like Okay. Uh and here here's another great example. I so I played more from the pioneer banning to the uh RC than I had all year combined when it came to like actually focused testing and playing games of magic. Yeah. I played more in that two week span than I had the whole after year after the Karn Ban
0: and all that stuff. Okay. Correct,
1: yeah, exactly. All that year, I guess I would I'd argue MH three doesn't count, but I did focus and try really hard for that. So post MH three to then, which was about eight or nine months, I you know played less than I had in that two week period. And I was playing leagues and I played against some really great players. I went to like Lavunga and Leviathan and uh, Mog and like all a lot of great mm-hmm. Magic Online grinders, and I had some really good games. I also had games where people lightning struck my 3-3 when i was at two you know and it was just like <laughs> it was just like this is a moment of like leagues are noise and what leagues okay. are is a great way for you to get games in when there's no one else to play with and you can't focus test with your friends or maybe don't have that experience or you want to get reps in right and so i don't really care if i win or i lose what i care about is like how did i play did i make good choices was my logic and my reasoning good you know like mm-hmm. what was going on with that sort of stuff and like when I look back on tournaments, it's like if I won the tournament but played poorly, I'm not gonna be like the guy that's like a poor like a bad winner and ruin the vibe for everyone else. But I will think about it a lot. And like when I'm on the treadmill or lifting weights, it will like ring in my head like, You should have played better. Why did you play so sloppy? What is going on? That like you played like this. Who cares that we won this RCQ? You very easily could have lost, you know? Like I've only played like one weekend of RCQs every season or whatever. Like, I haven't had to grind. It's very easy to qualify, I think, um, if you get lucky and you're good, you know. And I think I've hit the lucky part where I've only had, only had to play one weekend of these things. You know, I won the shot, one shot, one shot, played an Apex event and then lost their Saturday one and then won their Sunday one. And which is even like just kind of like a bigger RCQ, right? So, like, should I even judge myself for losing that? You know, personally, I do. Like, it's like, come on, man, you couldn't win that. Like, you're good at modern, you know what's up. And so there is some amount of like, I hold myself to a high bar where my play is bad, but if my play is good and I think my reasoning are good and it all makes sense, then what more can I ask for? It's a marathon, not a race. You know, half the room loses round one and everyone, but one person loses every tournament that i play. You're not special because you lost. People lose all the time. You know, I lost round one of the RC and someone like condoled me and I was like, Oh, don't worry. Like 700 other people did too. It's all good. And there are people like my friend Sky, who she lost the first three rounds of the RC and then won 11 in a row to make the Pro Tour, including beating mm-hmm. me. You know, I bumped into her later in day two at uh, X and three. And, you know, like they could that's just the level of mental toughness. That's exactly like super
0: strong. Yeah. And that yeah. And
1: that's like, you know, like they are very strong. They've worked very hard and they've continuously proven and it has been great to see them push forward. And, you know, I can't wait to see what they do at the Pro Tour. It's going to be so sick. I know they're going to take it very seriously. But, like, it is just a matter of, like, I don't care if I win or I lose. Like, when people are, like, can't lose with my deck, all I do is win in leagues, and they can't tell me, like, why their deck is good, or, like, they don't have a good process or a good reasoning. It's like, that's cool that you're winning. I'm really glad. And maybe you, you're you bad at communicating these things. You know, some people are mm-hmm. not very good at communicating, and I try to keep that in mind, that, like, you know... Mm-hmm. um that's not a skill. And sometimes I had one guy in coaching once go like, man, I just feel like I can't communicate it, but I feel like I know it. And I go, man, luckily for you, your job is not to talk about magic all day. My job is, and I can tell that you know what's going on, but you're having a hard time communicating it. But for right now, let's just focus on fixing these other things because I can tell that you know what's up just from the way you're kind of the words you're trying to say. I can, I can see it in your play, Yeah. but your job isn't to talk and like sound smart or whatever. Right. Just because Mason sounds smart doesn't really mean anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's cool mm-hmm. that you can't make a TikTok. The goal is just forever. to just <laughs> yeah. for you to level up. So it's exactly. like, yeah. Just it, you do know, better. we'll, do f- we'll find a way. We'll find a yeah. way. Yeah, it's gonna be yeah. cool. You know, not not everyone needs to be a content creator or like you know do these sort of things. And if you want to help your friends and teach them, that's great. They'll figure stuff out in the way to communicate and time together. You know, communicating with your friends is like an art. So I don't know. Who cares if you're five elite? Who cares what won the challenge? Whatever. Magical line is a totally different game than magic and paper.
0: Was it a process for you, though, to learn to deal with the negativity to yourself in a healthy way? Because I don't think Mm -hmm. a lot of Magic players are even there yet in terms Mm -hmm. of, like, positive self-talk or not getting too down on themselves when they're Mm -hmm. losing a round or two. Like, how did you develop it?
1: I would say growing up, my... So my dad is a uh, psychiatrist and definitely learned a lot of things about how to like self-talk and think about yourself and like who you are. And I think, you know, the anxiety we talked about earlier, um, I didn't talk about it too much, but a lot of manifestation was, I felt like everyone was judging me and I felt like everyone was looking at me. Like I can clearly remember, cause I went to like a church of Christ high school. I'm like in the ch- the chapel, I'm in the pew. And I remember thinking like these people are all judging me. And because I like, something happened. I can't remember exactly. They're all judging me for some reason and they're all looking at me and I'm like getting anxious and I can feel like the sweat starting to come. I'm having like a mini anxiety attack. And then it kind of occurs to me, you know, I like power through or whatever it occurs to me later in life that like all these other kids are all doing the same thing. And I think a lot of people act, they treat others the way they think about themselves. Right. And so like when someone like judges you on like, cause you didn't five or we didn't do well they're probably judging themselves and they have like a bad mental talk. I think that's bad. But I think also a lot of the times to circle, like not to go too far away from your question, like how do I handle it? I think I was very blessed to have a father to help me with that sort of thing. And he also played a little bit of collegiate tennis. And then he had like a car accident, I believe, or some sort of accident where he couldn't play anymore, but he loves Mm. tennis. And one of his best friends is actually the Vanderbilt women's tennis coach. Uh, and was for a long time was my godfather, Jeff McDonald. And he definitely taught me some stuff where I like talk to him and things that like, I I wish I could remember them exactly. I just have clear memories of Jeff teaching me things and talking to me and talking about winning and losing. And what matters is that we learned from this game and that we're going to move forward and we're going to improve. And like, I wish I could remember his exact words, but regardless, that's the kind of stuff that taught me. And so when I play magic, I take it like it is fun or whatever, but I'm like very serious about improving my goal is to like be the best Mason I can be and see how high up the totem pole of being good at magic I can be and I compare myself only to me. I only care about being better than past Mason. And I want to look down and see how far, you know, below Mason from a year ago and two and three and four, you know, a month ago is. And I just want to keep climbing up. And if you know the difference between me now and me a month from now is like just like a little inch of the proverbial pole, that's fine. I just want to keep climbing and keep improving. And I don't care if I'm better or worse than Nathan. I don't care if I'm the best, you know, or worst uh, contractor on MH3. Like who cares? Who cares about any of those kind of stuff, right? Someone asked me, is it intimidating to work with Brad and BBD? And I'd be lying if I didn't say at first it was, but then I took a step back and realized like, why would I feel that way? They picked me. I'm smart. I can do these things, you know? And I had a moment of self-doubt, but another with like, All that matters is I do the best I can. I learn from the process and I move forward. And the same with magic. Why would I care if I lost a tournament? Guess what? Everyone loses tournaments all the time. It is the most likely outcome is you're going to lose the tournament. Get used to it. Grow up. You're going to get mana screwed. Who cares? You're going to work really hard for something and fail. And caring is cool. But just don't be an a-hole to other people about it. Just like, it is cool to care about something. It is so dope to be like... I mean, it is like a dope to be like emotionally distraught and like sad that you lost at something. Just don't take it out on others. And like, it is cool to care that much about it, but also don't judge and hate yourself for it. Just be like, hey, it is cool to have tried at something and failed. You can succeed. Keep it up and let's learn from this and let's pick it up and let's not give up. You know, you haven't like you haven't lost until you've given up. Right. Like. Maybe James failed to qualify for the RC this season, but until, you know, James actually stops trying to qualify, James hasn't failed yet, right? You're still on that track, you know, and I I feel very strongly about that sort of thing. So, like, you know, like, I want to play more pro tours, and I want to do more things, and I haven't failed until I no longer can do those anymore, so...
0: Better to have loved and lost, right? As the mm-hmm. as the saying goes, right? Exactly. It's cool to want something, but just mm-hmm. don't get down this uh, overly self-destructive path. Yep. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be chill. All right, let's time. Ty- let's let's do the rapid fire round. What's the best or most memorable magic play you ever made?
1: It, it isn't exactly a play, but it is a moment where it was just like I was playing a team event in Kentucky and uh, Zoe Riedemann and Jesse Rocker are my teammates and I had already qualified for the RC but it's a destination team event and the whole team will make it if, if we do it and the goal was get the team to the RC, you know and I, I think Jesse had qualified, we'll sure end up qualifying the next week on an NRG event and Zoe, uh, spoiler, we're going to end up qualifying now I can't remember exactly when Jesse gets her invite Um, she might like get an extra one, but anyways, we're playing Zoe wins her awful matchup somehow, overcomes the odds, clutches it up. Heck yeah, she wins 2-0. Jesse unfortunately loses her awful matchup. It happens. I'm up a game, and um, I'm playing it and it's like four-color peak Yorion versus Esper. And um it is just a moment of like, I can't remember exactly what happens, but it was just a moment of I was like, trust me, I am not going to lose. I'm going to get you the invite. You have to just let me play, though. I've got this. Trust. I, I think I think what happened is Zoe was really anxious, and I looked at her and I said, trust me, we're going to get the invite. And one of the coolest parts about this is so I played this like long, interactive, grindy game. This person has like a cool Esper build, and what I learned later is they asked the judge a question away from the table, and the, the judge uh, was talking to them, and they go, I think he's cheating. And the judge goes, okay... That's a serious claim, but I'm here to listen. What's going on? What what's the thing? And they go, Well, he hasn't played anything in any turn since I like drew this counterspell, or whatever. You know? And the reason this story is so funny is the only reason I learned this How story. How does he is... know
0: I have a counter spell? He must be cheating.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. When, like I'm not playing anything is like I, if I remember correctly, I have like a Renin 6 that's just like ticking up. And so it's like, why would I play anything? I'm yeah, going to win ahead. the game in two turns. And why would I ever take a chance to lose? And so it's funny because I only learned this story later because I'm talking about this match to someone the next day because spoilers I end up winning and I'll end up conceding in the finals of the 5k on Sunday in Pioneer uh, the next day. And I'm like, I think we're like talking like we've already shaken hands or whatever. And I'm talking about that match and the judge goes, oh, yeah, you know. Cause I tell him like, yeah, it was like very clear. He had a counter spell or whatever. And like, I just didn't play in anything. And like, I squeezed him with the Ren six and one. The judge tells me the story. So it was a really cool moment of one. I got to like be the cool anime moment of like, trust. I've got this. I'm really good at this. I'm not going to fail you. I promise. And I was doing it so well. This other dude thought I was cheating, which was sick. <laughs> and it was just like, <laughs> he's like, he's not playing into my counter spell. And it's like, why do you think he would play into your counter spell? I don't know. And the judge goes, okay, I'll make sure to watch Mason and within intent, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, all right. <laughs> but, um, that, that was a, I think that is, that is the moment that jumps out to me. Um, there are other cool play little moments, but that is the one that jumps out to me the most. You
0: are like my friend who used to be so good at Counter-Strike, headshotting everybody on the server that (laughs) he was banned from the server because they thought he was literally cheating because he was that good.
1: That's so funny. (laughs) Nice. Next question. What's the worst magic player you ever made, and what did you Mm -hmm. learn from it? There are a couple. Um, The one I'm going to tell the story of is when I tell in coaching a little bit, but the long story short is... And it's, it's been a long enough time now. I can't remember exactly. I think it was a situation where if I won this round, I was likely to be able to shake hands to top 8 the SCG. Or I was going to be in a winning situation. I can't remember exactly which. And it also it's unclear at the time. Sure. But I'm pretty high against, stakes. Hi, high stakes match. I'm playing Amulet Titan. And I'm playing against Affinity. And um, basically it comes down to I have a secure tribe scout. It's like... Blocking and I have to like activate it because I'm not going to get a chance to. And I need to put in a land or something along those lines. Um, and I have a radiant fountain and I have a ghost quarter in my hand. And I think, th- and I think, and I think, and I think there's a bunch of time on the clock. My opponent's like, Don't worry, we have 30 minutes, it's going to be cool. This is game three. And I think, and I think, and I think, and I come to the conclusion that radiant fountain is the best play, it dodges the most things. Ghost Quarter was good, but I think this is the 51% line. It beats all basically everything, including Galv Blasters. which I haven't seen any of this game. And I activate my Tribe Scout, and I put in my card, and I say Game to Life, but I've dexterityed in a Ghost Quarter. I put and this is the old rules, so Ghost Quarter is on the table, and I my only other card in hand is Radiant Fountain, and I've said the life. I obviously can't take it back. I've put it in, you know, my. Whatever. New rules. I have a get... mechanical error. Yeah, Shit. exactly. And basically, the lesson I got from it is slow down. And I think that was one of the biggest things that helped me in Magic is, and I, I sometimes joke in coaching that LSV is the worst thing that ever happened to Magic because he plays so fast and he's so good. Speed Magic. Yeah, yeah, and people are like, if I'm good at Magic, I'll play fast. I'm Lightning McQueen. You know, and they play vroom, 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 vroom. And I did that a little bit. And I really slowed down, especially a little bit before that. But that really hammered it home of like Mason, slow down. And guess what card they drew, James? galblast Blast. Mm-hmm. And I died. Mm-hmm. And had I not done that, it, I would have won or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it's just one of those spots where it was a hard moment. It stung or whatever, um, you know, and just really cemented in me, cemented in me. You have to slow down. You cannot be making these kind of mistakes. You are trying too hard. You are going to too many tournaments, You're spending too much time. Slow down. Think about what matters. Make your plays well. You're a smart, handsome, capable man. Just do your thing. <laughs> you know, I throw the handsome there because someone if I ain't risen myself, how am I going to rise others? That's what I'm always saying. So, um, no, but jokes aside, like that that really matters. And I slow down a lot and. It's just important, I think. Like, I think people play too quickly. And especially when the, like when there's turbo magic five minutes in the clock, I'm never going to blame anyone who has like starting game three and makes some like sloppy errors. But if you're starting game three and there's like 35 minutes in the clock and you're playing its burn, take that extra two seconds. It's chill. It's going to be okay. So, what's your biggest magic level up moment? I think my biggest magic level up moment was when. I was talking, I wish I could remember the exact details of it, but I was talking to Autumn. We were talking about the blue-black sewer deck, which was, like, Scare God, Goblin Chain Whirler. And Autumn talks about, like, some play pattern thing. Yeah, they do this, so you're probably going to do this, so you do that, or whatever. And then they said, but we could do it this way instead. And it was just the idea of, like, oh, yeah, like... The ABC thing I had done before, that wasn't new. But it was like, yeah, if we know they're going to play Chain Whirler on three, and normally we would play Glint Sleeve Siphoner on two, they might wait as well. So we can maybe do something like hold up an Essence Scatter pass if they slam we Essence Scatter, but then we can bait them on four by going Glint Sleeve plus Essence Scatter to get them. And that was a big level up moment of just trying to, like, not only think about how the games go, But how can I maneuver my opponent to do what I want them to do? Which is like, oh, you want your Goblin Chain Whirler value. Here, let me do this thing that's tempting to you, you know? And also, under the same lines, I'm not doing anything. Don't extend into my kill spells or anything like that, you know? And now they're getting got, you know? So Mm -hmm. that would be, I think, one of my bigger level-up moments.
0: Who's the magic player that's had the biggest influence on you as a magic player?
1: Hmm... So my local friend Trey definitely, like, Trey McLarnan took me under his wing early on into Magic and helped me, like, catch up to speed with everyone else. And, like, was much better than me but took time to, like, play Magic Online with me and we would play all the time and work together on things and taught me a lot of lessons. So, like, he's one. But, like, another one that jumps out to me is, like, Autumn definitely taught me a bunch of stuff like we just talked about without ever really, like, sitting down and doing it. Another one is like Harlan fear taught me some stuff with the way he thinks about the game. Back when I was on Nova for a little while, I learned a lot from Jerry, both eventually becoming his friend and talking to him, but also just listening to him via his podcast played a big part in it. Um, Spencer in like a very similar way where listening to his podcast, eventually became friends with him. It's hard to nail down one person. I would say, one of my biggest strengths is learning from other people and taking their life lessons and applying it to myself. So I wish I had a more concrete answer, but I think it's all of them. And if I had to say one person who I'm like, not super duper close with that, like didn't have an impact on me, it's probably someone like either like PV or Javier uh like javier you i mean got just due to their bit. body of work like it yeah like like javier and i are like i would say acquaintances now like we play at that pro tour uh all be one and then we did the super league and we chit-chat a little bit you know and he's very nice and we like we've talked at like i think it was world to bumped into each other and spoke but like we're definitely not like i'm not like this with javier you know but you know mm. i think we would say hi to each other and like maybe have dinner so like i guess i would probably say him i also think my classic soapbox moment of Javier is like one of the best magic players of all time very clearly and i believe the fact that he is not an american is why people don't recognize him as such even though like Less i think visibility. a lot of the, a lot of players who are in franchise get it that Javier is good but a lot of people who are in franchise don't realize like Nathan was having a crazy year and Javier was like right here. And Javier's uh-huh. also been doing that for years <laughs> and, and like been the world champion too. Sure. So crushing for years. Yeah. yeah. Th- that guy's definitely taught me a lot via watching um, his play. So, you know, there, there's a lot of people and I learned a lot from people at Grand Prix talking to them and going to SCGs and getting to know these people and just listening to like the way like Edgar Magalhage and uh, Matthew Dubs, mm-hmm. excuse me, like talked about Amulet and like listening to that and like Dom Harvey and like his approach to things and like all these different people I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, I learned a bunch I learned a lot from Kane and Abe and just, just I don't know, mm-hmm. I-, I learned a lot from a lot of people, so mm-hmm. I guess, well, gun that's... to my head, I'll say try, since, you know, he helped catch me up to speed
0: Sure, so, but uh, yeah you're synthesizing from so many mm-hmm. different sources, standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were yep. What's your favorite magic-related travel
1: story? At one event, I, I can't remember. I think it was maybe a Vegas, but I'm flying back, and I have, like, a connecting flight. i them in Vegas. I had a connecting flight, but I'm, I'm flying back from some place, and I'm, like, working on an article. So I have, like, the Decked app on my phone, I'm, like, building the deck list, and I'm, like, writing my article in notes, like, outlines. So I can, when I get home, I can, like, actually finish it up. And this person next to me is like, "Hey, I wasn't trying to eavesdrop or, or eavesdrop or whatever. But I saw your phone. Do you play magic or whatever?" And I was like, "Oh yeah. Oh, it was it was DreamHack. That's what it was. I was coming back from DreamHack Dallas." And he was like, "Yeah." Uh, I was like, "Yeah, I do. You know, blah, blah blah." And he was like, "Oh, did you play this tournament this weekend?" And I go, "Yeah, I won it. That's that's what I remember right now. But I remember <laughs> there was like there was something that happened that was very funny." And he was like, "Oh, dang, you know." Uh, yeah. But yeah, that was it. I, and I'm sure there's much better, funnier ones or whatever, but on the spot, I, I can't remember them. And I just, sure. I feel like I'm missing some all-timer story, but it's just not popping up to me right now. That's okay.
0: That's the one that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The the random air, mm-hmm.
0: airplane or uh, uh mm-hmm. stranger moment kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah and they didn't yeah. know that people
1: could like make a living playing magic, So We talked about that. It was fun.
0: I know that one of your favorite movies is um, the social network. What do you love <laughs> about this movie and why?
1: see you talk to trey i i i I, well there's a couple things like about the social network so one i think it is an interesting idea for a movie to talk about this thing that like you know when the social network came out it was like 2013 i think 12 so like we were in the era of social media but not even in the way we are now right i think it's interesting to take a look on it and it is like a dramatization of uh, like these real events And it's very much like Artistic <laughs> The
0: Sorkin Fincher uh, exactly. View of Exactly Yeah events. Sorkin
1: Definitely took some things You know And like I- I've heard like What Zuckerberg had to say On stuff And like my understanding Is like the girl From which they sort of Pivot the whole movie around At the beginning Isn't even like a real girl Because Zuckerberg Had been dating like The same girl Basically off and on Or maybe his whole life Before then But I say this all to say I thought it was a really Interesting character piece I think it was also A really interesting idea And I think the writing's Really dynamic I think the it's like snappy i really like sorkin stuff in general um so like you know i'm kind of a sucker for those kind of things but i think the social network is just like a fairly good thing like a fairly just good movie and it's just enjoyable and i think there are a lot of like also kind of meme iconic things that come from it like earlier i made actually a reference right i said drop the Stoyer, nathan's cleaner you know like that's a reference Mm -hmm. to like in the thing the guy from myspace is saying drop the the on facebook and like the, I'm coming back for everything, you know, like one of my favorite posts I ever made was I took the guy from that scene, Andrew Garfield, and I put Ragavan's face on it, you know, and it's said, next mm-hmm. turn, I'm coming back for everything. And it's just like, I don't know, like the movie just kind of sticks out in my mind. And I know because a little behind the scene, James asked me who are some people I should reach out to. And one of them was my friend Trey. And we have this end joke where no matter what movie's coming out or someone's talking about like a greatest movie of all time, I always just kind of go like, Yeah, but the social network. Am I right? (laughs) So, so I can tell that he's sort of thrown me under the bus in real time here and making me defend myself. I I do really like the movie. I would like. I gladly watch the Social Network right now. You know, it's been like a year or two. I think it is like snappy and fun or whatever. Um, it is an interesting concept. But also, in joke of my friend Trey, that you know, it's clearly the greatest movie of your mind in every generation. So you want to watch the Social Network instead? Yeah, yeah.
0: Clearly, you know. That's crazy. I I haven't watched it in a while. I should probably revisit it. I'm just a big fan of like David Fincher's movies. Like yeah. I've watched The Killer twice already this year uh, on Netflix oh, just because he he directed it. And uh, mm-hmm. I I generally watch movies because of the direction. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something weird about me that I mm-hmm. guess it's unnecessary to share. But yeah, um, can I ask you a question? I,
1: I, yeah, yeah. What sure. is, what was your favorite part of The Killer? Because I wanted to like The Killer, and I watched it all, but I would just say it was fine. Like I wish I loved it, but I just didn't love it. There's a lot of things
0: about the plot that just don't make sense. Yes. And I, I, I think I think okay. Um, I'm gonna try to say this without it had style. Spoiling it. I'll say that. Like okay. I think there's two things that work for me for mm-hmm. the movie. One is that it's actually kind of a social commentary on David Fincher himself. Mm-hmm. Like here's a guy that was basically like beaten around by Hollywood is now able to like create a movie that he wants, basically a blank check because of Netflix. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of commentary on himself as his own arc as a director. Like the killer is essentially um, Fincher. It's like, here's somebody who is now able to go off into the sunset, uh, who is wronged, uh, who doesn't take it too seriously because there's these little monologues in the movie about how like, you know, people are born every second. And like, mm-hmm. like what am I doing? Like there's, there's, there's this very existential like, I don't know what to call it. Like it's a, it's a yeah. very postmodern thing about how like it is actually a, um, uh, it's actually about him, like David Fincher, the the killer. Um, the other thing I really like is that the plot does and doesn't make sense. Like okay. without spoiling it, like mm-hmm. what he does at the end does not make sense. Mm-hmm. Like, right? And but it's also really darkly funny because like he's actually not very good at his job, which kind of is related to, like, point one. Like, he sure. actually is not very good. Like, he actually miscalculates a lot of things during the the movie. You kind of think he's just this badass killer, but he actually f- screws up, like, a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's like, there's no, like, um, self-reflection on that. It's kind of like the magic player who's like, why mm-hmm. am I losing these tournaments? Like, I I am the greatest magic player ever. Why am I losing mm-hmm. these tournaments? And it's like, <laughs> even even, like like administering like the wrong dosage to the dog like i, I don't think i'm spoiling anything but yeah. it's like there's there's these like miscalculations that are just really funny if you think about it it's also mm-hmm. a commentary on like david fincher himself as a as a creative force so it's a very like tongue-in-cheek movie like if yeah. it's just surface level it's not remarkable but if you actually follow like fincher's movies and body of work like it actually makes sense like yeah i could I- and and the and the Morrissey soundtrack is also funny because like Morrissey is kind of like having his moment of like being canceled this year, so it's like a very weird choice to use the Smiths as music for huh. the movie.
1: There's just stuff like that that's really interesting. Interesting. I will say this along that same line. I I do kind of agree. He kind of talks like he's this like like he is the hitman from like the Hitman games almost. He's like, right. I'm the elite assassin, and it's like, oh shit, and then, like you know, this thing goes wrong. And it's very, <laughs> yeah. very similar to that. Like he hides out in a Wii works at the beginning like yeah. a spoiler for like the first scene in the movie he's like hiding in a WeWorks which looks like a very official type company until you really learn about it. <laughs> so it's right, very right, right. interesting I guess actually because I hadn't made that connection until you sort of said it but I was like yeah, yeah he was in a WeWorks which kind of is like him. Have you read the graphic novels that this is based off of? I have not. Is okay. there, you I, you have or I have not. I've heard I've heard the graphic novels that some of the stuff that makes it not make sense is in there and that okay. basically was an artistic choice to leave that out. Oh, um, I, okay. I, I've heard they're very good and just underappreciated. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things mm-hmm. where, like, one day I'll maybe get around to it um, once I have, like, my palates. Closed. There's also
0: some weird stuff. Like, again, this is towards the beginning, so hopefully mm-hmm. I'm not spoiling anything. I, I feel like we're, like, dancing around spoilers. But, like, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't make sense to me how, like, he just wakes up from his nap and his heart mm-hmm. rate is so high. Like, if he's so used to, like, killing people, why is his heart rate, like, so mm-hmm. high where, like, it's not starting at, like, just 60 where he can just... Make the kill shot. It's just like there's stuff like that. It's just like Mm -hmm. perplexing to me, especially on the second watch.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I I definitely missed some of that stuff. It's interesting. Maybe uh, someday I'll give it another try, once I'm a little removed from it. It's also movies are also just kind of weird now. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like
0: they become something. And this is like old man James yelling at clouds. It's like Mm -hmm. it's not something that I even have to go to the theater for. Like, like. It's just something that plays in the background now. Like, it's not mm-hmm. no longer an event. It's like, it's it's kind of like if we use magic as an analogy, I can now grind magic online whenever I want. I used to have to, like, wait for, like, the weekly magic tournament to, like, and think about it and, like, mm-hmm. go there and do it, right? And now I can just fire up, like, arena or online whenever I want. And it's, like, mm-hmm. it sort of lost its kind of mystique in a way because, mm-hmm. like, I can always just do it. It's always in the background. I can yeah. always watch a magic stream, right? Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Yeah. Mixed dope, though. That's... yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right. Um, why is it that you're a fan of There Will Be Blood? That's so, that's another favorite of yours, right? Yeah. Is there I, something to
1: do with the magic grind
0: and the story, or what?
1: When I, when I say I'm a magic grinder, you'll have to agree. Um, no, but I I really like Daniel Day Lewis. I think he's a great actor. Um, I really like. I I will say this that I, I really like the story. For the most part. I think it drags a little at certain points. Um, But I like its commitment to sort of like. Telling the story. No holds bars. Very similar to what it is. Like One critique I think of the movie. That's a very fair one. Is that women don't speak in the movie. Uh, and there's like. I think it's like three or four lines of dialogue. But it I think it's an artistic choice. From. I can't remember who the director was for the movie. P.T. Anderson. P.T. Anderson. Thank you. I think it's like an artistic choice. That like this guy is like one he is like a dude from that era who doesn't respect women so he like if the whole story is told from his perspective and it's like he doesn't care what women have to think because he thinks they're dumb you know obviously that's not reasonable but like he has that viewpoint and it's like you have to basically accept that you are watching a bad person this is a bad guy he is not this is a bad man yes yeah exactly Mm -hmm. and he is very self-centered and very egotistical and very driven by profit above all else and it's very interesting to see sort of his rise and fall and see him push away everyone else and to see him break and like he's no better than Eli you know like mm-hmm. Eli is like a a spoiler for a 2008 movie as like this preacher in town that he very much hates and he and Eli the whole movie are like pushing back and forth at each other and like getting each other to like basically show their hand that like we're not good people and we are just mm-hmm. here for the money and forcing them to do stuff you know and then the mm-hmm. movie like you could argue Eli loses if you want to see things that way, but like really uh, Daniel day Lewis's character, whose name is escaping me at the moment. He like succumbs to his stuff and like, lets his emotions get the better of him. And Mm -hmm. he, you know, in his own words, he finishes himself, you know, he ends Mm -hmm. it all uh, and like kind of ruins everything he worked for because of his pride. You know, he's going to end up in like not a very happy situation because of his choices. So I really like that movie. I think it is very good. I think it also, And I think it has some very iconic scenes, too, that are very, you know, uh, fun. Like, I'll drink, you know, I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. And, like, Mm -hmm. slurps it up, you know. And, like, if I say I'm an oil man, you'd have to agree. And, you know, um, (laughs) when, like, his son, there's this iconic scene where this oil rig goes on fire and explodes. And his boy ends Mm -hmm. up becoming deaf. And uh, there's, like, oil rushing out of the ground. And he's, like, covered in oil this fire is lighting up his mm-hmm. eyes and he's staring at it. And his like mm-hmm. co-owner comes over and goes, how's the boy? And he goes, not good. You know, and he just like yeah. stares at basically all of his money. Cause he doesn't care. The kid was just yeah. a thing to get more sales. So he could be a father and son company. He doesn't need the kid anymore. It's yeah. all about the money for him. And it's yeah. an awful person, but I find it so interesting to watch this person is so antithetical to me. And like, I think to most people. So, I'm right with you. Like, yeah. there's a
0: couple things, right? One you said, which is like, um, I think you sort of implied. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sort of taking it mm-hmm. is like it is very like it has very iconic imagery. It has mm-hmm. like very memorable moments. Like, I would mm-hmm. argue even the opening moment where he's trying to like like find something out of that rock, like mm-hmm. that is like something that really sticks with me. Yeah, it is basically like the American like the American dream, like in a story, like because mm-hmm. it's it's based on the book and it's like it very much is about that and it's also about as you said like pride before the fall like it's about like losing one losing self-control and that's the real loss right and um i'll add another one like i i again i love the direction i love the the way the movie's made Um the johnny uh greenwood score is also amazing like, um, so, you know, it's got all these mm-hmm. things. I feel like now having talked to you, I need to rewatch it. So
1: yeah, yeah it's very good. <laughs> I, I watched it about a year ago. I think I watch it every two or three years. So I'm probably a little too soon on the rewatch, but it is very, mm-hmm. very good. I recently, a movie that I would say is up there while we're on this topic is Whiplash. I think I actually, I think Whiplash. Oh dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think I, I've watched it like three times already. So I, I've seen it once and I think, uh, I think you're friends with Heartland Fear. I think he and I. Yeah we were like, we had this discord called corn hub during the pandemic when things were wild. And we would watch movies sometimes together after we'd all play among Mm us. And I remember like he and myself, my friend, Bob and cheese, my friend Baker, we watched it and it was very good. And it was a movie that I was like, I think this is a top 10 movie for me, but I've got to give it time to like digest and then go back and watch it again before I can write it off. But I think that might be what my plan is for tonight. I'm going to go work out after this. Okay. And I'm going to go watch whiplash again because whiplash like that is a movie where like, if you are someone who competes in something, you're probably going to love that yeah. movie and it's going to really ring home for you. And it is it's, so good.
0: It's so good. And that's actually my favorite game podcast episode mm-hmm. of all time is when they talk about whiplash. Damn, there's there's I- a, there's an episode where Jerry T and Brian talk about the movie. And if you haven't listened to that, like it was actually still called game podcast before arena deckless. Um, that's the episode. Like I guess, they actually yeah. talk about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess arena deckless happens before COVID and I didn't watch the movie till COVID. So it's possible I just skipped mm-hmm. the episode because I was like, I haven't seen this movie. I'm gonna have to go back. Uh, you got yeah, you yeah, should I, I check, gotta, it go like, check it out. Like, check out.
0: Yeah, there's there's some real uh, mm-hmm. love within the magic community for that movie, and obviously mm-hmm. it's it's about an unhealthy obsession, but mm-hmm. it's so good. The performances are so good in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you should watch it again. Have you seen Ping Pong, the animation along the lines of this? I have not. Is so you recommend it? I, I recommend it highly. I think it's my favorite anime, and it is a very similar-ish type of vein to Whiplash. Of like an unhealthy obsession with competing and competition. And I think mm. it also it handles it from a lot of different angles, including the angle of like, I'm just not good enough. You know, of like mm. I'm just never gonna be that guy, you know? Mm. And like maybe I'll have like a good game or something, but I'll never be there. And I think ping pong, it's eleven episodes, it's on Crunchyroll okay. now. Um it's very, very good. I, I think it is like a quintessential if you like sort of those kind of whiplashy stories. This is like a more lighthearted but serious version of that. Mm. And uh it is a very unique artistic style and it's all that ping pong. So
0: Okay. Yeah. That reminds me I also have to watch Blue Lock. I think it's Oh I think Blue it's called, Lock's so good. I, I, yes. I've only watched maybe the first two episodes mm-hmm. and I, I feel like I need to get into that. Yeah, Blue it Lock. is was a recommendation.
1: Great. Yeah, that yeah. that one I highly endorse as well. If you're someone who likes competing in things and like sports anime, Blue Lock mm-hmm. is I'm a big weeb. I, I love, you know, uh someone called me like a a (laughs) culture yeah yeah i like i watch my stuff i do my thing you know but i I don't make it my whole personality you know i make imrakul my personality sure Uh, (laughs) no
0: all right yeah all right last question for you so Mm -hmm. what is it about card fight vanguard was that because of your love for anime that you got into this game as i understand it it's the first card game you actually played seriously before magic
1: right yeah it's a card game i competed in and did very well and like my friends also did very well and like one of my like local friends Who still plays the game. I saw on Facebook the other day. He got back to Worlds again. That game is still going. I think that's his second or third time. Jordan was just insane at that game. How Uh, do you describe this game for people that are only thinking of it in magic terms? So it's crazy because the game basically rebooted with the same IP as my understanding. My understanding now is that it is very much like. I guess the best way to maybe describe it is. It's like the one piece card game. If you've played that. Uh, meets, I was going to say, Japanese
0: matters. TCGs have
1: their own vibe. Yeah, yeah, it is very much like a game with high resources. You see a lot of your deck um, and unconventional ways to unlock those resources. So like traditionally when I played, it was a game that the closer you got to death, the more power, basically the more mana you had. But you to play your more expensive spells. You must have a lower life total. So if you want to play your haymakers, you kind of like have to be like in a losing position. Um, and that was just like a card like. We talked earlier about life. You know, I like, I told you a little bit of my story and I stopped playing card games. Eventually, you know, I have to come back for us to be here. But what happened is I graduated high school. I go back. I start playing Yu-Gi-Oh! It's fine. But some guys who played Yu-Gi-Oh! Played Vanguard and I really liked it. I found it. It was just a really fun card game. I just sort of kept playing, kept competing at it and really sort of grew and like learned a lot of things via the context of that and then took that into Magic, you know. And the reason I started playing Magic is I loved... Cardfight Vanguard, a lot. I was like, I had a lot of fun playing. It was just a really good time. But the level of competition, people weren't taking it the same way, nor was the company. The company mm-hmm. didn't want to make things competitive, which is fine. I totally understand that choice. Yeah. But to me, it was like, I want to see what it's like when people are trying. And that's mm-hmm. the thing about Magic. One of the things I love the most, I don't think it gets talked about it enough, is I really love that you and me can both have the shared love of this game. We're both going to fly to Vegas to play in this hundred thousand dollars standard tournament. And you're going to put all this time in. I'm going to put all this time in. And only one of us gets to move forward at one to know. And we get to compete mm-hmm. and push each other and see that. And I just love playing someone who really cares. Like when people don't mm-hmm. care, I find it so much less, like it's just not as entertaining. There, are, there I,
0: are stakes, right? Yeah. yeah. I want
1: you, And the, the stakes can just be your pride. And I want you to care about winning and care about improving and that sort of thing. And when that happens, that is the most fun magic can be in my opinion
0: mm. excellent cool I think that's uh the best way to to be as a as a competitive player is the is the self improvement but also knowing like taking pride in high level competition mm-hmm. so Mason, thank you so much for doing this conversation with me i I felt like it's uh, it was really nice to kind of understand what you're about who you are i think that that was the first question i felt like you've done Mm -hmm. an awesome job of answering it so thank you for for taking the time
1: thanks for having me on i had a great time talking about this sort of stuff you know and maybe someday in the future we'll have part two and i can talk about the things i learned while on the inside in more detail and i'm super chad mason that's very muscular and healthy but until then <laughs> we'll do a <laughs> we'll do a fitness podcast at yeah, some point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Once I'm super Chad, we can then consider me coming back, but not until then. You know, got to have a goal mm-hmm. to work towards. Got to got to get to final form, Mason. Exactly. Clark. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. To a cool cool.